0: chair Eric okay Sicily friends we're here today to tie the knot between Ron Bance and Eric Hillman marriage why do we do it everybody knows the stats one and two marriages end up in broken dishes and a trip to Tijuana is it loneliness partly is it teamwork definitely things just kind of go easier when there's two of you one of you Can wait in line at the movie theater while the other guy parks the car. Better seats that way. Better room rate when it's a double. Ron, Eric, you ready to file jointly?
1: We finally made it, Charles, the episode where Ron and Eric are getting married. This is uh, kind of a historic moment in Northern Exposure and just like in television history. Uh, It's not the first gay marriage on TV, but uh, I think honestly I think it's the second the like the, the, there's one other uh same-sex marriage that happened on television before this which is kind of startling uh this is I think 1994 here in this episode uh, but before we dive into that you know I love a good I love a good um, marriage episode wedding episode but in real life I love I love a great wedding do you have any uh any fun wedding <laughs> stories Charles uh
2: I have, okay, I know for a fact I have not been to nearly as many weddings as you have. Oh, It looks like you've been to, like, a lot of fun ones because sometimes you'll text me. (laughs) (laughs) You'll show me what's happening in that wedding, and I'm like, that looks super fun. I mean, the latest one that I can think of is the one that me and you went to. We went to, like, um, uh, dear person on the pod, Tyler. He's -hmm. been on the pod twice. Great guest, great all-around person. And we went to his wedding at around December. And his was an outdoor wedding, like half outdoor wedding, half inside wedding. And what I remember on that wedding is that they had a, uh, he had an open bar, but his open bar was staffed by just two individuals. So you can imagine that it was a very long queue in order to get your booze. So what I would do, and this was like 7.30, so like the night is still young, uh, (laughs) I got in line. I got my booze and then I went back in line to drink my booze because I knew that like by the time I was done drinking that booze, it would be time to order more booze. So it was like a cyclical booze train for me. Uh, I think I did that like four or five times. <laughs> <laughs> that was <laughs> I was very, very drunk by the end of it. Um, but what about you, Lee?
1: Yeah, I mean that is one of the best parts of a of a wedding is an open bar. I'm trying to think: have I been to a wedding without an open bar? Because they exist. Some people are crazy enough to to have a wedding Why without though? an open bar. Uh, just because, like, maybe the family is maybe a little more rigid, or you know, well, we're, we I live in New Orleans, which is a very debaucherous city, uh, and I feel like most of the South, even if you are like religious, you know, people like to drink down here. Maybe that's Maybe that's just my own like bubble, but mm-hmm. uh, I feel like that that's true. Um, I, yeah, I guess I've been to a few weddings. I've been, I've been very fortunate, very lucky and honored to be uh, in the wedding party for a few weddings. And that's always really cool because, uh, you know, I, I imagine for the bride and groom, I mean, you are sort of like the stars of the show, or I guess in this case, in this episode, the groom and groom, uh, but you know, I feel like it's probably a lot of work for them. They have to, they have to do so much in one day. And it's also a lot of pressure to that day. Whereas for the wedding party, you can, you kind of are also, you feel like hot shots. Sometimes you'll ride in a limo or like, I don't know, you get special <laughs> treatment the day, like as you're getting ready that day. But, you know, you're just, you don't have the the whole responsibility on your shoulders like the, um, the, the parties getting married, you know, will so um, so that that can be, I guess, a little stressful. But uh, I will say on this topic, the last little bit, um, I've always wanted to be in a wedding band because I love playing music oh. in front of crowds, and I feel like at every wedding, no matter what the music is, people will dance, people will. They're trying to have a good time. So you can really do nothing wrong and people will eat it up. <laughs> so I have, a, I have been fortunate enough to, uh, to play at a wedding, uh, and, and two on two occasions, but I'd like to, you know, I'd, I'd like to see what it would feel like to do that a little more often. We'll see.
2: Yeah. I, I know that you are an individual that will dance at weddings. I know that <laughs> like
1: I will not, cause I can't. I don't, I don't know. Just I don't like, like I, dancing. I uh, you know I've I, I do not know. Did I? I guess I must have danced at Tyler's wedding. Uh, yeah. I mean, no. You were like yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> I do you remember were, now. Uh,
2: <laughs> You weren't belligerent or anything like that. <laughs> but I do remember being like, no, come out and like dance in the inside portion. And I just wanted to be outside, uh, drunk and drinking. Just like, <laughs> like I, I think I was talking with like this eight year old child that like, right. had, I like this. was sitting he on was the a, couch. He was a magician, right? Yeah. He was like a magician <laughs> and he was like speaking with me. And I was like, I'm down with this. Like, let's well, <laughs>
1: show me your magic tricks sorry. while I'm like drunk. Sorry to, we're, we're maybe going on too much of a tangent, but I remember this kid, cause we were talking to him and he was like, do you have a deck of cards? And I was like, no, but then he did find a deck of cards and I was like, oh, show me. But he didn't end up doing the trick like he forgot it or something. He didn't do any magic tricks for me. Well, I mean, the best part was that he was willing to go get a <laughs> deck of cards
2: at this wedding venue yeah. right there. So I remember talking to him and being like, what do you want to be when you grow up? This <laughs> is, you know, just drunk. And I was like, I don't want to dance. I'll just like learn did more he about say, this.
1: Did you say Magician. No, he wanted to go join the Navy,
2: I think. Wow. (laughs) If I remember more, it was just like, wow, this child's going to be way more successful in life than I am.
1: (laughs) 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 Anyway, what what are we talking about here, Lee? All right. Yeah. We're talking about the 1990s TV series Northern Exposure, a very progressive show for the time, as uh, we kind of hinted at uh, with the opening here. This is the, if I'm not mistaken, the second. Uh, depiction of uh, gay marriage or a gay wedding on television, I guess, ever and, and all of Earth history. But this podcast is the Northern Overexposure podcast, and we overanalyze every episode. And part of our shtick is we invite on a guest at the end of our program here, uh, typically someone who's never seen Northern Exposure, and we get their sort of outsider opinion, fresh look, take on the episode. But um, we've planned it thus for this episode to invite on our friends from Subtextual Podcast, Lizzie and Sam, who they've actually both been on the podcast before uh, separately. I think Sam was on in – oh, yeah, earlier this season. We're close to the end of this season now, but earlier she was on – I think the episode was Rosebud. It's like the Orson Welles uh, film fest. And then Lizzie was on back in season two on – It's the second episode of season two, The Big Kiss. I was trying to remember the title, uh, which is also another great episode. But now they're going to come on at the end of the episode jointly. I guess I should. I mean, hopefully they'll talk about it later. But um, if you haven't heard of the Subtextual Podcast, uh, it's a podcast that I produce apart from this, uh, like engineering, producing, and Lizzie and Sam talk about a different movie each episode. And usually that movie has some sort of uh, either... Overt or subtextual gay meaning. Uh, So they sort of analyze the film from a queer lens. So I don't know. I've always enjoyed their takes on film and they've got great chemistry. It's hilarious listening to them. But I also find that I've learned so much just from listening to their perspective because it's like something that I've never thought of before, something that sort of goes over my head a lot of times. Uh, so it's really fresh to hear that point of view, you know?
2: Yeah, definitely. They have a great dynamic. Uh, we were recently on the pod. We were their first guests
1: we, uh, on I, the pod. I think we timed it properly that if you're listening to this episode right now, they've also got a new episode today with, with us guesting on their podcast, talking about the Wonkar Y movie, Happy Together, which was super fun.
2: Yeah. Definitely. We had a blast being on that podcast. Um, I've listened to their first episode, Fried Green Tomatoes, mm-hmm. before, and I thought that was really great. So, yeah, listeners, if you're really interested in the subtextual podcast, please give them a listen. But otherwise, Lee, let's uh let's get the breakdown of this episode. Who was the... First of all, did we even like this episode?
1: What do you think? I think it's a fine episode. Um, you know, yeah, I mean... It's uh It's like um, I don't want to say middling, but like it's in the middle. It's in the middle. It's like not surprisingly good, not terribly bad. I think it's mm-hmm. just it's um it's passable. It's servable. Like
2: I'll take it. Yeah, I think that that is actually a really good way to describe it. It's a serviceable <laughs> episode. What I would have really liked, and I was really hoping they they'd really commit to this, is that like it's a wedding episode. Like, obviously, that's going to be the A plot. Let's have the other B and C plots be facilitating that A plot right there. I want everything to be related to this. I don't want any other loose ends that are happening that are attracting my attention to this. I want it all to circle back into this wedding. Yeah. And unfortunately... Now that we've seen it, we can see that while the hauling plot line Mm -hmm. was uh, directly being related to the wedding, the Joe and Maggie one really wasn't. Like in a subtext manner, it was because Mm -hmm. you're dealing with the relationship of two people that are about to uh, drastically change. Yeah, that is related to it. But like uh, if you apply it, you know, as a whole, though, that could have happened in any other episode. Like you didn't have to have this happen in the wedding episode. Which is why I was like, ah man, if only we could have got more. I want to know more about this delicious drama that's happening yeah. with Ron and Eric.
1: Yeah, I remember. You know, I remember this episode. Uh, I remember Ron and Eric getting married on Northern Exposure. But um, yeah, when I thought back to it, I was like, that's pretty much all I remembered. It's like, yeah, they get married, but what what happens in that episode? And as you mentioned, Charles, it turns out that's not like the whole episode. They, it's sort of. Is sort of like a side plot because now it's sharing uh screen time with, of course, Hauling, who is sort of um, all of his actions are pointing towards the wedding. You know, he's trying to cater this wedding. But then there's the whole plot line with Joel and Maggie, which is sort of removed from the wedding, and Joel and Marilyn. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So there, there's things, other things happening. It's not like this is the wedding episode. It's just the episode in which Ron and Eric get married.
2: Right. That's a great way of saying it. Yeah. Who
1: who was the director for this? Who was yeah. the writer? Let's jump in here. Uh, the episode is called I Feel the Earth Move, season five, episode 21. I think we talked about it at the end of last episode, but that's a, a, this, the title of a Carol King song. And yeah, I'm pretty sure that's, you know, they take the, they take the title of this episode from that song and the lyrics in that song, uh, I think more relate towards Joel and Maggie's plot line. Things like, um, you know, I feel the earth move under my feet. I feel the sky tumbling down. I feel my heart start trembling whenever you're around. So definitely, I mean, we'll get into that, but like, you know, Maggie has some particular symptoms whenever she sees Joel and, you know, sees his intimacy towards her that, um, I don't know, evokes the words of this song that Carol King uh, wrote here. Uh, But we'll get into that plot line later. The director of this episode is Michael Fresco, who... Actually, normally when I take my notes, I'll write down like the name, like if it's um someone who is a repeat uh, director on the series, I'll write down all their previous credits. But Michael Fresco, I was just like I instantly think of Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving episode in the fourth season, and I feel like he's been doing a lot in this season as well. Uh, but of course. He did Dateline Sicily, I think is his first episode that he directed. He did the season four finale, Old Tree. And then in this season, The Mystery of the Old Curio Shop, Rosebud, Mr. Sandman, Hello, I Love You. And now I Feel the Earth Move. So yeah, we've definitely, I forgot to like write his credits in my notes here because I've just seen his name so much. I'm like, oh yeah, Michael Fresco, we know this guy. Uh, We've apparently been talking about him a lot this season. Uh, the writer Jed Seidel, uh, let's see. I think he's only, I think this is his only writing credit on Northern Exposure, but what's interesting about Jed Seidel is he is like, he starts as like a writer's assistant, producer's assistant on Northern Exposure. I think starting in around season four, mostly working in season four and season five. I think he's got, um, Some more credits in some of the season six episodes, but at least on IMDb, he leaves at some point in season six. Uh, So as far as I can tell from IMDb, he got his start on Northern Exposure as sort of an assistant capacity and now writing his first writing credit ever, uh, because I think he goes on to write more for television and such, uh, is here on Northern Exposure for this episode. Oh, all right. Finally, the air date is May 2nd, 1994.
2: Got it. Well- Let's just start diving into the episode right here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's start off with the opening scene. We're going to be looking at Ron, Eric, Maurice. Is Shelly and Holling there?
1: I can't remember. I know that uh, Eric's mom. Eric's mom. Yes.
2: Pat. They are. I see them. Yeah. Shelly and Holling are there. And Eric's mom, Pat, is there. They're having a lovely dinner and they're talking about things until Pat accidentally spills the beans. That Ron and Eric are getting married, and that's one of those like, and you, it, it, like the camera cuts to Maurice, and it's one of those things from like the eighties <laughs> television shows where they're like, yeah, like scratch. how did I find myself in this situation right here? <laughs> it's like one of
1: those Maurice a is like, wait scratch. a second, yeah. time stops.
2: <laughs> He's like, wait a second, <laughs> like, this doesn't sound right.
1: <laughs> it's so surprising to me. Well, I mean, this is uh, we'll get into this more, but. It's just surprising how much it's so very clear that Maurice loves Ron and Eric. Like they're such close friends. They're like mm-hmm. best friends it seems, you know, a lot of times. But he still can't wrap his head around <laughs> the idea that they're gay. Like is it a problem for them to get married? I don't know. Well, he, we'll get into it cuz he definitely he talks explains about his it reasoning. In this reasoning. Yeah. Um, one thing, the other thing that, you know, maybe this was a surprise for Maurice, the the whole announcement of Ron and Eric uh, planning to get married here. What surprised me is uh, I don't remember if it's the like very first image, but it's like one of the first lines. Maurice is on the cover of a Time magazine. and this isn't this isn't the only time magazine he's been on the cover for. He's like, this is my first, time cover it's like him and some other astronauts i think mm. on the cover of time it turns out oh wow was northern exposure ever on the cover of times like the tv show itself i don't think so i feel like um i've seen some cool like tv guide or like people magazine maybe covers with like um rob morrow and janine turner i feel like a uh, There's not a whole lot of like, if you typed in Northern Exposure on Google Image Search, there's just not a lot of great stuff. So I don't know if they ever did. I'm going to look it up. Well, I'm seeing one
2: on uh, uh, Sears Magazine Mm. for Janine Turner. Nice. uh, That's snowbiz, And she's like inside a snow globe and it's like white. (laughs) I see that (laughs) one. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It says D. Is that D Magazine? Is that Sears? Uh, It's on the Sears website. Sears.com. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is D Magazine? D, the magazine. Oh, it's Dallas. Oh, Dallas okay. Magazine. Dallas But I magazine. guess you could buy it from Sears.com <laughs> at some point because it was on their site, listed on their site. Yeah, I mean, that's that first scene. You know, Time Magazine, I think Maurice is going on and on and Pat is like, all right, I got to go to bed at this point. And they... um They let it slip that Ron and Eric are planning to get married. And that's, you know, that's why Pat is in town. They were going to surprise Maurice. What was the deal? Like they hadn't finished their arrangements yet or something?
2: Yeah, I think they're just picking up some of the smaller tidbits before they fully announce it. Like they wanted to be a smooth selling thing. But they're pretty much, you know, 99 yards down. You only got the one more yard to go put it in to be able to announce. And that'll be the opening scene right there. After the opening sequence, we cut back to Maggie and Joel. They're in the air. They just came back from a trip. And it's a really sweet scene because Joel has like this small glint on his face. And Maggie's saying like, all right, what's what's up? What are you hiding from me? And Joel reveals that he picked her up some sonnets from Edna St. Vincent Millay. Edna St. Vincent Millay is an American poet. Uh, She won the Pulitzer Prize for her poem, The Ballad of the Harp Weaver, which I actually read as soon as I heard it. I literally paused the episode and I was like, I'm interested in this. Like, let's take a read at it. Uh, It's really good. It's a great poem. It's one of those that has like the standard rhyming scheme of A, B, C, B. Uh, it has all the flavors of what you normally associate with like quote unquote normal poetry. And what I mean by that is like anybody could read it and understand what it's saying. Not Mm. saying that you couldn't be able to understand like higher poets or anything like that. But like, uh, for every layman, you could read the Ballad of Heart Weaver at, I don't know, like 10 years old and you could read it at a hundred years old and you would still find immense enjoyment out of it. So I thought it was a wonderful poem, and I was looking through a couple of other sonnets, and yeah, I can see how Maggie really likes this poet right here. But that's not the point of the scene. The point of the scene is that Joel did something nice for Maggie, and as soon as this happens, Maggie starts experiencing this turbulence on this plane, a shaking, a foundation that's being stirred up. Mm -hmm. And Joel has to tell her, like, no, I didn't. Like, what turbulence are you talking about? I'm not experiencing (laughs) anything.
1: Yeah. Maggie feels some turbulence. Uh, she feels something uneasy, like spitting around and, uh, Joel doesn't feel it at all, but I don't know what, I think it's maybe Joel just defers to Maggie because she has more experience or, or not at all. Is he just like, huh, this is weird. I can't remember like what resolves in that scene. Just the fact that Maggie is feeling strange, and does Joel even take note of it yet? Later he'll bring it up. He's like, I've been noticing that, like, this is a repeat occurrence. But
2: You're right, later he'll take note of it. But right now he really doesn't. And I guess I'll like I'll talk about it a little bit right here, um, and then I'll build upon it later, just because I don't want to forget about this. But uh, when you experience turbulence in the air, it's actually normal for an airplane to have that. The plane is simply correcting itself against the pockets of air that are swimming against it when you're Mm -hmm. up in the sky. So whenever you feel the turbulence, you might think like, okay, what's going on? What's happening? Like, this isn't natural. It's perfectly fine. Like, you're supposed to have turbulence right here. In that regard, it's fine that your relationship is going in this direction. You might be panicking because you're going against something in which you're not used to, but it's perfectly natural. You don't have to freak out.
1: Yeah, you get a, uh, do you freak out much on, I mean, I definitely, turbulence I oh think, can Lord. scare anyone, but just like in a plane in general. Oh,
2: uh, absolutely. Like I might, <laughs> I don't know. Okay, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say this. And I don't know if we could stay on the pod, but like, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, like my belief in God goes up like a million fold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like start praying. I, I didn't used to be that way when I was a child. When I was a child, like six or um, eight years old, I had no problem being on planes whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But then the older I got, I think my motion sickness started to get much more severe. So like I would physically feel sick. And then like the swinging up and down on the plane would also freak me out. Like, I don't handle roller coasters very well. I don't handle anything <laughs> that is, like, beyond my normal scope of living. Roller coasters, uh, horror movies, yeah. turbulence, anything that takes me out of my comfort zone. Yeah, <laughs> all those like, things I'm not Don't uh, like I'm not being super big from
1: your comfort zone. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty, uh, pretty anxious about flying. It's mostly, like, the liftoff and landing and then turbulence. But if we're just, like, in the air, it doesn't freak me out too much. I guess that's pretty much... That's the, that's the normal reaction, but, um, but yeah, uh, (laughs) anyway, so, you know, we get some more stuff. I don't want to go straight through, um, the episode because we'd have to do a couple more scenes before we even get to hauling, which, um, Well, I was just going to say, we normally will take the episode and split it into plot lines and kind of focus on one at a time, rather than go through the episode chronologically. We go storyline by storyline, and uh, we still have Holling's storyline to set up, so maybe we... um Do we dive into Hauling here or what's a better one to start with?
2: Uh, Well, not only do we have Hauling's plot line, but we also have Joel and Marilyn. Marilyn, It's like four plot lines that are happening. Now, granted, the Marilyn Joel one is not like a really big one right there. (laughs) Um, Why don't we do Hauling first and then let's do Joel and Marilyn, Joel and Maggie and then the wedding itself.
1: All right. I think I can remember that. Yeah, it's not too much to remember. But uh, Hauling, we will start with. Hauling, uh, you know, enters the episode offering some salmon fritters to Ron and Eric who are, um, I guess, crunching numbers or like figuring, uh, you know, they're, they're making arrangements for the wedding. And it has to do with, I think, their caterer because uh, Hauling comes in and, you know, he's trying to entice them with some salmon fritters and, uh, you know, asks about who's catering, what's this and that. And Holling is in the scene trying to undercut their caterer, offer, you know, a cheaper price uh, for the same deal so that he can cater their wedding, I guess, to to rake in some extra dollars.
2: Right. Are you an individual that's comfortable doing this if you were Ron and Eric? Because, to me, I feel like if I already made a commitment to someone else, I feel uncomfortable breaking it, even if I'm saving a couple dollars.
1: Yeah. That that doesn't seem right. And especially because uh I mean, I don't at this point, I don't know when the wedding is, but it all seems to be happening very fast because it goes from You know, them not even having announced their wedding to Maurice. And then, you know, they're going to get married pretty soon. Like their mom is, or uh, Eric's mom's in town. They've already got a caterer lined up. Now, do they have a contract with the caterer or do they just have a quote? Because they could, at that point, they could be like, uh, we got the quote. Oh, you're right. Yeah.
2: I think it's just a quote.
1: I want to say. If it's just a quote, that's cool. If they had already like sort of agreed to do something and then decided to undercut that is a little messed up for sure
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i think you're right i I think it's just a quote and Holling is reading through their menu of what they want to offer which is like also like just it's a lot it's like a very hot cuisine like h-a-u-t-e like (laughs) high cuisine right there (laughs) I'm not, it's not like that I revel in trash food. I don't even eat junk food that much. But like, also, whenever you get to like this really high grade, like prosciutto and melon and foie gras and all that, I'm like, no, just can I, like, no, I'll just take like the salmon. Like, can I just have a boudin ball or something? That's yeah. what we have in
1: like <laughs> just fried, like sausage down here. But that is a, a staple at some, <laughs> at some weddings, like fried boudin balls. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to be. Holling doesn't present as the type of person who would cater this type of wedding, in that, like, he makes, you know, bar food. Uh, he's that we don't expect, we expect, I wrote down, where's Adam when you need him? Like, this sounds right. like a perfect episode for Adam to come in and take over Holling's operation. I don't know what uh, Adam Arkin was doing during this, but uh, he does not appear in the episode. We also don't get Dave. Uh, Eugene, who we saw in the last episode, is uh, taking over for Dave while Dave is uh, apparently on vacation. So we get more Eugene, uh, which is awesome. Unfortunately, less Dave, which is not so awesome. But um, I I like seeing Eugene and and Hauling working together in this episode or actually struggling to work together. Uh, some other notes I had in this scene, apparently Holling had sworn off catering because uh, he had, I think, catered uh, the Founder's Day celebrations and there was like a salmonella outbreak. Holling says he blames, uh, you know, it's, it was the dairy supplier. He got like a switch up or he got like, he had to use a different dairy supplier and that's what messed it up. But um, I think what's happening is like Holling really wants to What is it? He needs, like, a little extra money for, like, this is later, but he needs, like, a new sump pump or something like that.
2: Yeah. He wants, he's got, like, some renovations he wants to do to the bar. He's looking to make some extra dough on the side so that he can afford it. Uh, Unfortunately, we'll see in the next scene Mm -hmm. that, like, he promised Ram and Eric $60 for head. Mm -hmm. But the caterer that we're going to go to uh, originally, I think his name is Mark C.? I know his last name starts with a C. Cantwell.
1: Uh, I think it's in Cantwell. Like that's the other city. Yeah, or like like that's the place he's in. I forgot to write down the name, and I almost wonder if the name that they mention in that first scene is the same name they mention at the end. It probably is, but the other caterer from Cantwell.
2: Right. Uh, he is saying that he will do it at seventy-five dollars, and mm-hmm. uh, Holly will soon realize that there's a reason why. Uh. Goods are valued at the way that they are valued <laughs> because he's running some numbers with Eugene and he's saying like, all right, what's this going to cost? And it's way too much. It's out of his purview. So he's got to think of something to do.
1: Yeah. They under budgeted. I think the scene is Eugene and hauling like with a little adding machine sitting at a table in the brick. Shelley, I think hops in there and like brings them some snacks, mm-hmm. but it's not looking good for hauling. He's like, you know, I thought we would scrape off some extra money and I could, uh, you know, pay for these repairs in this, uh, in this like downtime or whatever. But it turns out we're probably gonna be lucky if we break even. And the next scene we see with Holling and Eugene, I believe is when the food delivery starts to arrive. Is that right?
2: Yeah. This is the one where Eugene gets the shipment of food.
1: Yeah. And he's like, "Holling, you're not going to like this. There's like so many errors in this delivery. You know, we got honey baked ham instead of prosciutto Uh, we got like chicken livers, like, what is this? And then Holling's like, no, 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 You don't understand. We're getting chicken livers instead of the foie gras. We got the canned apricots instead of, uh, and, you know, the honey baked ham. We're going to slice it super thin, just like prosciutto. You know, things like, you know, chicken livers make better pate anyway. I don't know if that's true or not. Mm -hmm. Um, but Holling is trying to be a little crafty and, um, You know, at least in this scene, I sort of had some faith in him. I was like, maybe he can make this work. You know, he's got some plans on how he's going to, how this is going to turn out. But he does say he wants to use the syrup from the apricot cans. He's like, don't Mm -hmm. throw away the syrup. Save that. We're going to use that in the tropical punch, which I don't know if that actually is good (laughs) or not. It just seems a little, I know those can kind of taste metallic, but I don't
2: know. Right. This is like... (sighs) So this type of behavior is type of behavior like <laughs> I don't like really condone because it hits very close to home because mm-hmm. my father is really like this. My father <laughs> is like absolutely the person that will scrimp and save and say like, "No, this is like the same thing. It doesn't matter to save a couple bucks." The thing is, let's it, get this. It's <laughs> not
1: though. I guess we figure that out because at first I was like, "Yeah, he could probably make this work," but even this episode, no, it's not right. presents it as like. There's a reason why you eat foie gras and not chicken liver. I mean, chicken liver, people love, you know, pate from chicken liver. That is a thing people eat. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely tastes different than foie gras, as Shelley will bring up later.
2: Right. And here's the thing of where I think the subtext comes in. So Holling is wanting to treat this, uh, this catering a little bit different than what should be happening right here. So mm-hmm. in a way, he's kind of treating this wedding as different than an ordinary ah, wedding and he shouldn't be. Yeah. A wedding is a wedding. Uh, people who love each other are getting married. You should treat it the same as you would on a regular wedding. You don't have to be like, you don't. Know, you know, preface this by saying it's a special wedding or anything like that. It's a wedding.
1: Yeah. And I like that because it, it that is sort of, we'll get there towards the end of his arc. That's his realization is like, this is in the end about, this is a wedding. You know, this isn't like something that I should be trying to, treat differently. This is like, let me think back to my own wedding with Shelly and how great of a day that was. Uh, I guess we'll get there. Uh, cause then mm-hmm. we're getting ahead of ourselves, but we can leave this scene with the, um, the, the sort of, uh, substitute, uh, ingredients basically with, I, we should also mention Eugene is sort of, uh, starting to feel, not okay with this idea. Like, he's, you can see he he doesn't really like the idea of trying it this way, but Holling's going to push him for that.
2: Right. We're going to see this really come to a head on the next scene between them. They're starting to get everything prepped. The scene doesn't really make it clear if Holling's plan is working or if Eugene's standard of ethics are the ones that are uh, prevailing. Mm -hmm. What I mean by this is, like,
1: I don't know if he's actually succeeding on this. Like, is this actually good food? I think it's... I think it's not until Shelly, that for me at least, when Shelly tries the uh, pate, where mm-hmm. where I start to realize, oh, so this isn't gonna work. Cause, it seems, Cause like, okay. it seems like it might work in this scene, right? Cause they're doing it. It still looks fancy. They're like rolling the bread flat, spreading on mm-hmm. the cream cheese, a little slice of pickle. Um, and Holling's having like, he's super excited. He's like, he's like, man, we're we're like rolling through this. Like he's having fun. They're making great progress. Eugene, on the other hand, very disenchanted.
2: Right. Because it's not for a noble reason. I can understand if somebody Mm -hmm. wants to scrimp and save because they have to scrimp and save, they are living paycheck to paycheck. So they have to make the best of a situation. To which then that's very admirable. Mm -hmm. You're saying that you're just trying to get by. Holling is trying to reach for more than what he is like needing right now. Now that's debatable. Maybe he really does need that sump and pump. Maybe he really <laughs> does need these equipments and you know, he really should blame him for trying to be an entrepreneur and trying to go for a wise business decision. But the thing is that like, it's like he has the means to go and provide for yeah. this wedding, but he chooses not to. Now I know he says like we'll break even if we're lucky. So therefore this effort will go to waste But the reason that he's getting this in the first place is because they wanted to go for, like, uh, a local community feel. They didn't want someone that didn't belong to Sicily to be catering to the wedding. Yeah. So, in a way, you should be thinking it as, like, really just a favor, but again, right. I can totally see the other end of the uh, fence where people are saying like, yeah, but you don't just provide a service for nothing. Like you got to get something out of it. Your labor, you are worth some sort of value. You're just being taken advantage of. So I can totally see that. Right, I just right. think that like in this uh, in this particular scene, you can see him, yeah, he's, it's like he's like trying to convince himself. He's mm-hmm. like, yeah, like this toast <laughs> that I'm like hitting with a rolling pin <laughs> and doing it with like, weird apricots and honey ham. This is totally as good as the other stuff. Right, kids? Like, right? Yeah. This is why we can't go to McDonald's for you, even though you asked for McDonald's.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, how do, how are those crab puffs coming along? And Eugene will correct him. Pollock. And Holling's like, well, you know, you can't even really tell the difference. I hear the Japanese prefer the, uh, the crab stick to the actual crab. But um, no, I, I do actually think you're right, Charles, in that, in thinking that like, when I saw that first scene and Hauling is like really trying to angle to get this job as caterer, I thought it was going to be like, oh, this is going to be fun. Like keep it like a family, like neighborhood affair. I would love to see Holling cater this event rather than someone from Cantwell. But you're totally right. It's, that's not Holling's reasoning behind it. His whole reasoning is just because he wants to make the money instead of the Cantwell person. It doesn't matter that this is his friends, Ron and Eric. Uh, he just sees an opportunity for a little extra money, which is, you know, like that is his job. He is um, someone who works in this industry, so this is a way for him to make money. But I think by the end of the episode, as we already kind of hinted at, it will become less about the money and more about the community and sort of the neighborhood feel of having a great time with, uh, with your community.
2: Right. So we can cut to the – pretty much we're getting close to the end of his plotline line where – it's at the middle of the night. He's still trying to finish up the last batch of canapés. And
1: he has Shelly taste some of the, uh, you said it was foie gras? Yeah, it's. I think he calls it the pâté, but uh, I'm not even sure because it's foie gras. I So I've had pâté. I've had like chopped liver, which I guess chopped liver is like chicken liver pâté, right? Mm-hmm. I think. I don't know that I've had foie gras. Is foie gras liver or just like duck fat? It's fatty liver, I'm guessing. I actually can't. It's, I don't know.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's the one that they, they stuff down a duck's throat, right?
1: Yeah. Well, they make a, they over fatten geese, I guess, a goose, and then it gets really fat. And then they, that's the liver, I guess. Yeah. I think it's the liver.
2: Yeah. I think there's ethical ways to do it now, actually. I just read about that. Interesting. Like there's, yeah, there's a, you don't have to do it. Cause most that. people
1: are like, yeah, I'll never eat foie gras because of that. Because right. Of Seems unethical. I think there is a,
2: there is an ethical way to do it now. Like, uh, it's just completely fine. But anyway, what's happening here is that Holling <laughs> is saying like, oh, look at this foie gras. just as good as the real thing, right, Shelley? And Shelley's like, I don't know. It doesn't really feel that way to me. But again, I'm not really a liver person, so maybe I'm not the right person to ask. But again, to me,
1: it doesn't really feel like foie gras. Yeah, when she eats it, she was like, oh, is this like foie gras? Like, I forget actually what the scene was like, but it was something, sorry, I should have taken a little better notes, but it was something like uh, (laughs) Hauling is like, oh yeah, you've had this before at this other event, like at Maurice's or something. And she's like, oh yeah, I actually like that. That was liver? She's like, I didn't know that was liver. And she eats it and she's like, huh, kind of does taste like liver. I don't remember it tasting like that. So yeah, I mean, again, I'm not very familiar with foie gras. But it's not the same as chicken liver. Like chicken liver tastes like liver. Foie gras apparently tastes like something else or, you know, just doesn't have that. Whatever Hollings concocted in this blender is not working. You know, he sprinkles in a little <laughs> celery salt, Worcestershire sauce to try to cut the flavor a little, but I don't know. Um, well, let's see. I actually, I really liked in this scene, cause I have this written down in my notes. Shelly was remembering their wedding and uh, I wrote down, I love this line, people threw rice at us real hard. And just like remembering, <laughs> remembering the different things, she tells a really beautiful story about Holling noticing uh, two birds in a tree. Mm-hmm. And of course, Holling is a bird watcher. So he's like, yeah, those were the uh, chestnut-backed chickadees. He saw like two birds in a tree and Holling told Shelly like, look, it's just like us. Like they're building a nest. This is just like us. And it's a nice little image of... Um, matrimony in a way.
2: Right. And she does this thing that I always like in writing and also in real life where you pull back, like you're so inwardly focused that you have to take a step back and realize what the major goal was for this whole thing. And what it is, is that it's a wedding for Ron and Eric. It's their special day. You only get one of them, really. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying obviously you can get married (laughs) again. I'm not you know, presumably like let's I'm talking uh, figuratively. You only get one of these. <laughs> and you it's all about them. It's not about you trying to save a couple bucks. It's about their special day. And right. you're just trying to make it. You're an accessory to make their day the best. Just like other people made your wedding like an amazing day. And I think that's when he comes around to it. And that's when he realizes like, I got to treat it like any other wedding. And I got, I can't be saying that this is like some sort of deviation from an ordinary wedding. I can't be saying that this, uh, these two individuals can be in a union instead of a marriage. Uh, cause that's at the end of the day, you're still saying that's different from a wedding when you're saying they're like, well, they can go to civil unions. It's like, no, that's like,
1: I don't even care if it's the same as
2: like benefits, man. Mm -hmm. It's a different word. Therefore it will always be different from a wedding.
1: Yeah. And, uh, he course corrects here. He like changes plans, throws away that disgusting chicken liver, uh, blender concoction. And, uh, he's like, okay, we're going to be up all night. Um, call in a rush delivery for the right ingredients. He, he asks Shelly to, he's like, okay, who, what's the name of that rival caterer? Marty Peterson, get him on the line. So actually I don't, it's actually very unclear because I guess we'll get to it on the next scene as well. What exactly happens here? Like at first I was thinking Holling is going to call in rush delivery for the right ingredients and stay up all night and do it all over again. And then this is just my uh, understanding. And then he's like, no, 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 instead of that, I'm just going to call up Marty Peterson and give him the job. Um, But, oh, go ahead. Yeah, what did you- I think they- they do it together
2: is what I, I think it's what's happening. Cause we see him. It's wearing this uh, little apron that says
1: contour on it. And oh, we see Marty Peterson. Yeah. Yeah. A he's running to totally miss that. <laughs> Let me watch yeah. that again. I just, in my notes, I'm like Holling and Shelly are standing next to each other. Maybe it's not even Shelly. It's Marty. Uh, but that's all it's yeah, like, uh, that makes a lot of sense then. That's yeah. not confusing.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I think that he just uh took a compromise, just probably split it with uh Marty, probably be like, hey, you wanna come put in half the effort or something like here? And I'll put in the other half, we'll split the deal, yeah, you know, right down the middle.
1: At, well, let's talk about that next scene when we actually do see the wedding, or we can just particularly talk about um hauling there. Because, like, you know, someone is like, I think it's Ruth Ann who's like you know, Holling is walking around with a plate of hors d'oeuvres and she takes one, she's like, oh my gosh, they sprung for like this food, like whatever this uh fancy ingredient is. And Holling's like, they sure did. You know, and I think that is implying like I think Hauling is kind of bearing the burden of this cost. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe he did split it with uh with Marty Peterson or whatever whatever the case. I don't think I think Holling put some money into this and is getting nothing back, you know, which is I guess at the end of the day, the lesson he learns, and he would rather, which is nice, he would rather make this a great time for his friends than, you know, f- try to pinch pennies and find a way to just make it all about his profit. I'm also with you, Charles, because you were mentioning, like, I think he should get paid for it. like he this is his business. Like, he shouldn't be afraid to go into business with them and, like, make some money. But I think what's the most important, something that he sort of uh strayed too far away from the most important part was just to make it a you know a great time for ron and eric and to fulfill their wishes
2: right well said right there well that's the end of hollings plot line so let's reverse yeah. it all the way back and let's go to the most minor of the plot lines let's talk about joel and Marilyn, who we have yeah. not seen
1: in a while uh Marilyn or just both of them together i guess
2: um both. We haven't really yeah. seen Marilyn that much. And you with that, you know, with that statement, we also would have to deduce that we haven't seen Joel and Marilyn a lot.
1: Yeah, I guess that's true. A Joel Maryland plot line. Uh, because that that happens a lot, I guess, often we get like a little bit of their uh it's always fun to see <laughs> their plot line. And in this one, Marilyn is journaling for a writing class, it turns out. Like, actually, I think Joel is stepping out of the office and he's like, hey, Marilyn, can you do this for me? And she's like, uh, not right now. I'm, I'm like busy. I'm writing right now. I'm like working mm-hmm. on this journal for my writing class. And we can immediately see Joel is like curious, he's like, oh, really? You're you're doing some journaling. You know, I, I used to like... um writing and I would keep a journal. It would help me with my writing, something like that. I guess Mm -hmm. he's trying to, he's trying to like be friends with Marilyn, but also I think as it turns out, maybe like live a little vicariously through Marilyn, like he kind of wants to feel like a writer through her. But from the get go, Marilyn's pretty private about it. I mean, as she should be, it's a journal. She's kind of keeping it, you know, keeping it away from Joel's eyes. Right. Did you keep a journal or do you still keep a journal? I don't, I've never kept a like daily journal. Though I used to sort of write just whenever I felt like it, I would I would write journal like entries, but um, not on any sort of daily basis. Maybe I had at, at one time for, you know, like a week or something, but I'm trying to think of the last time I might've journaled and it was more of like, just like unpacking the events of like what happened like over the summer or something, but not really writing. Mm-hmm. It's like after I've like sat with it for a long time. What, what about you?
2: Uh, no, I never kept a journal when I was younger. The only time I've really journaled was like, I had one particularly great day. I was like, this <laughs> yeah. is a fantastic day. I want to remember it. And the way I'm going to remember it is not because of the, the thing that I'm typing into, but it's the act of me typing into It's going to make me remember it. So, like, I still remember typing out my thoughts on it. I don't even remember <laughs> what the, the contents of oh, that wow. note is, but I do remember being on that Amtrak and uh, typing it out and being like, all right, I was like a really, really fantastic day. Uh, but no, otherwise I'm um, just like you, I don't really journal that much, but you
1: know, you know, I've looked back at some of my journals that I've written a long time ago and like, it's nice to see, but then I'm always like do I need to save this? Should I like burn this and never look at this again? <laughs> for so, I don't know. Like, is it worth... Because I'm with you there, Charles. Maybe just the act of journaling it is helping you to remember it and to make it important in your life. But I don't know. Is this negative to say? Like, is it is it helpful for me to like look back at those journals? Maybe, like, I don't know. Because I do save like old journals. It's like, should mm-hmm. I keep that? I don't know.
2: I Okay, so like this actually just happened. I, I just remembered it. it. It just sparked back into my head. So I was with a friend and uh, I was discussing with him over the phone about like an event that had happened almost two decades ago on a Halloween. And we were saying like, oh yeah, you were like really young and uh you when he says you he's talking to me. He's saying like you almost got like hit by like a truck because mm. you were crossing the street and you, you didn't look both ways. And I want to say it was a truck and I want to say that it was Halloween and I want to say you were wearing a wizard's hat. And I was like, huh, you know what's really weird is that like I just uncovered some journals from my brother, my older brother. He had written journals. You know, he was journaling around that same time at that age. I wonder if he's got an entry for that. And I went through, got his journals out and I looked through it and lo and behold, it was the exact same day. And he even journaled it. (laughs) And it indeed played out exactly exactly uh, the way that we had remembered it, we we're like, oh, it was a blue truck, and it was some <laughs> college kids that are, like almost ran me over, um, and like cussed me out. Wow. I, still in my memory, in my defense, like I looked both ways, and it, <laughs> they turned a corner, which is why yeah. I didn't see it. So I think that's kind of you know BS on their part. I mean, yeah, me, you're me the pedestrian,
1: over. so yeah, I feel <laughs> I like, like you've always got the right of way.
2: Right, right there. Um, I will also say that journals provide like a really neat. Just like a perspective into a certain mood at the time. Yeah. Because I was also, I'm not like a super prying member. And I was like, I wasn't trying to like find dirt on my brother. But he was really curious to be reading something from 2001. And the way I was reading it was that like, it was right after the time of 9-11. This uh, Halloween entry. Mm. So when I was reading through it, it was like, a really turmoil time. It was like a thing that like I didn't think about because it was so long ago, but like it really was like distinctly different and reading through that journal entry brought me back to those days. Yeah, like, you know, being a child and experiencing pre-internet days and just what like the country was going through, it was really interesting. So I guess there is like lots of merits to journaling.
1: Yeah, I think I'm just like focused on like the annoying like angstiness in the like tone of <laughs> but, like in the tone of my writing or something, you know, it's always so like moody. But, you know, there's definitely a lot of stuff there where I surprise myself. It is a time capsule of like my personality. A lot of things don't change over time. Um, But, you know, just kind of being like, wow, like I, you know, I wasn't just some like annoying little pipsqueak, you know, when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Like there's a, Valid person there that is um just very interesting. Very interesting person. Yeah. So anyway, enough talking about our own journaling. Uh I guess, yeah, I wonder. Marilyn says she's doing the journaling for her writing classes. So yeah, I wonder what um what her intents are. Like, is she going to save these as a record? Is she just using them to try to spit out some ideas for stories? I don't think we ever get that answer though in the next scene Joel I guess is assuming that she's going to turn his outbursts into some sort of story or just some sort of writing he's uh because he, he's on the phone arguing with somebody he's trying to return a jacket I think it's too large and we see him really like you know like flexing the old New Yorker muscle like arguing being like look I'm gonna call your supervisor like what's going on here I demand I, I not going to pay for the return I think, postage. I think you're missing one scene. Oh, okay.
2: Yeah. There, right before that scene. And like, this oh, isn't a very yeah. large scene, so we can cut back into what you were just saying. But Joel was saying like, hey, do you remember that time that we had like that emergency <laughs> like, call from Yakutat last winter? And he's trying to like get Marilyn to open up a little bit more on yeah. what
1: she's writing. This actually is a really good scene because this is the one where he's like... uh you know, it's, it's crazy. I just found this like piece of thread in my pocket and, you know, it's not, but it's not just the thread. Remember, like this was, this has the whole story of like when I, that emergency, whatever. He's like trying to feed her a story, maybe that she's going to write. That's what I read out of this scene is like, he's trying to influence her to be like, yeah, I have got, you know, I've got great stories you could write about.
2: Right? I thought that this was going to go in a like a sweeter direction because i know how the line ends (laughs) yeah i thought joel was trying to say like hey if you need someone to talk to i'm always here for you to talk to Mm. i thought he was trying to get her to open up in that manner
1: i didn't get that that is that is nice though I definitely read it as Joel trying to like grab her attention and be like, I'm cool. I'm cool too. You know, I could definitely be that too. We could be writing (laughs) partners. I do think what you're saying, like, that's totally a plot line that could happen. And I think that would have been an awesome, like, that makes sense for Joel and Marilyn to connect like that. Cause they do have, like, I remember the episode when, uh, Marilyn takes a vacation in Seattle. They have some pretty touching moments there. But the other scene that I was talking about with uh, he's returning that jacket over the phone. He's like getting pretty irate on the phone and Marilyn is in the background, like sort of performing whatever task, picking up some things, she's watching him. And uh, when she finishes, she goes back into the sort of lobby, receptionist area and she starts writing in her journal. And Joel follows her out. And he's like, no, 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 you can't write about that. Like that's, that's just like one little random it's moment context, that happened. Right. Yeah. You don't, you know, that's not, that's not a story. Yeah. And I, I, I kind of sympathize with
2: Joel. Like you get somebody <laughs> at their worst moments. It's not going to look pretty, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that there's some merit to it. It's also why I don't like, sometimes you see it on celebrities, like you'll get these like out of context voicemails or leaked footage of them on set. Or uh, even just stories about them. You'd be like, oh, I met like Jesse Eisenberg in the grocery store and he was super rude. And yeah. it's like, I don't look. I don't know if he was like, he just was in a terrible mood or something. Like, I don't really know. Obviously, there's like degrees to it. Like You can't be like Mel Gibson or Alec Baldwin, <laughs> this type of stuff. Like, yeah, that's like absolutely terrible. Like, I'm not condoning that. But just like, you know, you get somebody on the worst days, they're going to be in a terrible mood. You can't always expect it to being the way you want. And when you publish it into like a journal or online, it makes you feel vulnerable. It makes you feel like crap that you just got painted that way. So I can kind of see where Joel's coming from.
1: Yeah. You think of those like celebrities that always have, people always tell stories of like, these are so, these people are so kindly and like sage and just like so calm and patient, uh, which when you hear that, it's like, oh, that's amazing. This must truly be like a an amazing person. Um, but then when you hear stories about people having like freaking out or like kind of acting a little rude, you know, that's – I'm with you, Charles. Like that could just be one time. You know, we don't know the full story. It's a bummer that they aren't perfect. But I mean, these are just actors. Like these aren't the characters that you see on screen. They're not perfect human beings. A lot a lot of people are messed up, you know. Yeah. And hopefully it's not like terrible, but – yeah, I don't what know.
2: What are the there was two that come to mind. I'm sorry, I'm gonna like yeah. <laughs> be really short with this. So I don't want to talk about it. Uh I think like Tom Cruise got one that was leaked about uh COVID protocols over the Mission yeah. Impossible one. Mm-hmm. And he was yelling at the cast and stuff, and I like I, I kind of sympathize with him, man, because he's like, you know, he's one of the producers and he's also the main star. And if production shuts down, you're putting people out of jobs right, for right. weeks at a time just because you didn't want to you know, like follow the small little protocol. And then the second one is uh, Christian Bale's famous one, yeah. from like 08, <laughs> I want to say. He's yeah, like Terminator out. 3
1: or whatever or Terminator yeah. 4.
2: And I got to say, man, I kind of sympathize with Bale. Like, well,
1: well, he was just getting like mad because someone was walking in the background of a take, right? It was the
2: assistant DP, I want to say, if I remember correctly. And this guy was moving on the set. And you're on movie sets all the time. Moving lights and stuff, yeah. Yeah, and he was, like, moving throughout. I I read that you're not supposed to do that. Like, that guy was in the wrong. Yeah, I guess he didn't
1: know that they were rolling. And, like... I definitely, I mean, this was a lot, I, listened to that rant that was, but that was like years ago when that happened and it's quite long and quite, um, incensed. So like, I would say, I think Christian Bale's in the wrong, unless it was a situation where they've been trying to get this shot for so long, or like it's a type of, or if it's the type of production where things are just happening like this and there's no like discipline going on in the set, there's no like, people aren't like having any respect for when they're actually rolling and stuff if people are just goofing off. So I could see getting mad about that. I'm also not an actor. I'm not Christian Bale, so I would never do something like that to another person. But (laughs) um, so there are, I mean, I could see why someone might freak out like that. But not having the full context, I don't think that Christian Bale should have. Freaked out like that. Um, but I also don't, I don't know the full story. Right.
2: I, I don't think that he should have taken it to that degree, but yeah. I can understand. Because get bad seemed at like, it. Yeah. If you're like in the like middle from, of a
1: take. Yeah.
2: Right. From what I read, it seemed like this was like an uh, an occurrence that kept happening with the same okay. individual. Yeah. And I think one of the <laughs> best lines that he had, I think about it. Cause I actually think in retrospect, I actually think it was like really nice for him to say, he goes like, you're a nice guy, but we're, me and you were done professionally. <laughs> I was like, yeah, at least he admitted. He was like, I'm not calling you that you're like genuinely a you know, piece of crap. I'm just saying that like your work ethic is terrible. I've been so on, like,
1: yeah, I've definitely been on sets where like it's just not jiving and like people are not. I, I, it's been a while, but I pretty much nowadays will only work with people if it's like a chill environment. But every once in a while, it's just like you can tell people don't mesh. It's and working on a movie, you're so strained for time. You just don't have enough time to do anything, and it's also expensive. So people get really uh, offended pretty easily and on edge. So I can definitely see getting angry like that, you know, at somebody if they're <laughs> totally like – Right. Uh,
2: well, anyway, uh, let's <laughs> – we get off this topic, let's go back into the Joel and Marilyn plotline, which is about to wrap up right here because we're going to see Joel uh, wander back into the office. Marilyn's out for lunch or she's out somewhere and Joel stumbles upon her diary that's being left out in the open and Joel peeks through it. He Mm -hmm. looks through and I want to say, I read this, so I don't know how true it is. (laughs) What's being written on this journal is Marilyn the actress's thoughts (laughs) on the the production
1: of Northern Exposure. Is that true? I'm assuming this is Elaine Miles, the actress from Marilyn writing this, though it could be someone else on set. But um, did you like pause pause the thing and I read? I did, it? but I couldn't read it. I've you. got I've got most of it that I could read. There is like the shot we get, it's very brief. So, and especially if you're watching this on like Standard definition television, you probably wouldn't be able to read it back then. There's also like a pin that's clipped on the page that covers some of the words. It's kind of hard to read, but with the Blu-ray, you can distinguish a lot of the letters. And this is what I read. Um, At the top of the page, it's kind of hard to read, but some of the words that I made out, it's in the middle of the sentence, says, here all day. There's definitely more to that sentence, but that's part of it. And then the next line you can read in quotes, very clear, I work in the office of Dr. Joel Fleischman. I don't have to type much. And that is a line that does come up later in the, so she, mm-hmm. like her character wrote that in the, in the journal. But then there's a line break and beneath that, you just see more writing. And uh, this is what I've got from that here. Let's get this scene over with. This is taking forever. Another 55 more minutes and it'll be 12 hours. Yay. I might get overtime. No, I do. I just want to go home. Hmm. All right. We have part of my scene done. Yes. Ah, I could be dreaming. Let's get a move on. Yes. This food looks pretty. (laughs) And that's, (laughs) that's what we have written on that page. Uh, yeah, that's, I thought that's pretty cool. I think, I think you're right. It's probably Elaine Miles. Maybe it's someone else like in props on set, but, uh, as you can imagine, I feel like, um, on set, you're working for 12 hour days. A lot of it is like hurry up and wait, just get set up and try to get everything ready for the take. So, a lot of waiting around. Uh, and maybe for whoever was writing this, they're probably sitting around doing nothing for a long time. So, yeah. <laughs> but at least they got overtime, it seems.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. Getting that sweet OT right there. Uh, and of course, like, you know, Marilyn. Comes in, Joel's got his hand in the cookie jar, and Joel lashes (laughs) out, because that's all you can really do. There's only, like, two ways to get out of the situation. One way, you apologize. Second way, you lash out. You're saying, like, you know what? I'm victim blaming. Like, it's your fault. Like, if your fault that the journal was even out there in the first place? That's what compelled me to read it.
1: Yeah, he says, this is entrapment. He, like, wanted me to read this, but she just kind of glares at him uh, as typical Maryland fashion. I don't think she says anything. I think we can wrap up this storyline with the next scene. Uh, It's at the wedding where uh, things are all starting. All the all the plot lines are all starting to wrap up at this point. We got to wrap up any loose ends because this is the end of the episode. Joel uh, goes over to Maryland now, and uh, he's like, you know, gotta we gotta we gotta hash this out, and um, he says it's actually pretty funny because Joel's like he views it as sort of doctor patient confidentiality so if Marilyn is going to write anything about Joel he should be able to read it it doesn't I don't think he's saying I I need to approve it he's just like if you're gonna write something about me I need to know what it says and uh, I think this is pretty bogus I don't think like Marilyn needs to share (laughs) that with him Uh, but she does anyway probably because uh, the things that she's written is um, pretty insubstantial she wrote uh, as we said earlier, I work in the office of Dr. Joel Fleischman. I don't have to type much. And then she turns to the other page and shows him, like, this is the other thing I wrote. Uh, Dr. Fleischman just came in and he said, Marilyn, could you make me a fresh pot of coffee? And that's all. That's all that she's written about Joel.
2: Right. And then uh, Joel kind of says, like, that's it? And she's like, yeah. And then they walk away. And that's the end of that plot <laughs> that's line. the end which... of
1: that plot line. What do you think that's, Yeah. Just for fun, I guess. I I mean you gotta use Marilyn
2: eventually. It's been a couple episodes since we we've seen her be involved in some way with the plot. You can kind of see, like, maybe if we delved a little bit more deeper into this, we can see like it's Joel being painted in another light, but Maggie is seeing him in also another light. So it's really like the context in which you are seeing this uh this character that makes sense. And Joel wants to be seen as Mm. a good boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And in his mind, he thinks like, there's about to be an archived piece of information that's going to paint me in a negative manner in which I am not a good boyfriend. (laughs) Or like, not well, just not a good person. Not a good person, yeah. Right. So, I guess maybe that's where the plot is heading towards. I, I don't know. I feel like they could have dedicated or allocated some other time to, to some other episode and use this for, a plot line that was also involved with the wedding.
1: Right. Yeah. To me, it's just like the thing we get from the end of that plot line is Joel just thought it was all about him and it turned out like not not to be at all about him. It's just kind of showing that humorous subversion of Joel's expectations. He thinks it's all about himself, uh, which is actually kind of funny to think about because um, where when it comes to Maggie... Joel doesn't realize that it's all it's all him like until right. I guess like later um but it's all he is the thing that's causing the discomfort for Maggie uh she I mean she's keeping that from him at first and he's like trying to figure out what it could be when the answer is you know right in front of him it's himself um or well, yeah, well he you know it's, it's, it's a the, perceived one though right.
2: it's a perceived <laughs> perception in which uh Joel is the problem so maybe you can be saying that like Joel is not the center of the earth. Your problems are not caused
1: by Joel, nor are everyone's thoughts about Joel. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much that. As you said, that's that plot line. Does that just leave us with, oh, we have Maurice. You know, we have Ron and Eric and and Maurice. And then we have uh, Joel and Maggie. What are we heading to next?
2: Let's head into Joel and Maggie. And I guess Maurice is wrapped into... Ron and Eric. They're okay. very intertwined. So I think it's fine that we combine both yeah, of those. It's kind plots of bouncing back and
1: forth. I like that.
2: Right. But let's rewind back for Joel and Maggie. Where we see Maggie at the beginning of the episode, and she's opening like a letter of sorts, and she's got her coffee mug ready. And her vision starts going blurry. It starts shaking up and down. We get a very cool shot of the uh, the cup of coffee being spilled. The unusual yeah. angle, which is why I was like, "Oh, that's really neat!" Like you're you're able to shoot in for that direction. It looks kind of handheld, mm-hmm. and we can see that like something's going on with Maggie.
1: I wrote down. I mean, I knew. I knew it was going on this episode, but as a joke, like Maggie, it feels like Maggie's being possessed, like the way they're shooting it. Maybe it's because I've been watching some like Sam Raimi movies, like Evil Dead and stuff, but it seems like <laughs> she's getting like possessed by a spirit. Yeah. Cause it is definitely, as you said, the shot of the uh, coffee, the way the camera acts with her vision, you know, her point of view. And it's like blurring. She thinks it's like an earthquake or something. I think, right? Doesn't she end up going to the brick later? And uh she's like, Didn't you feel that did you feel that earthquake? I was crazy. Like it must have been what? Like a I don't know, whatever it is on the Richter scale. Like I I don't know how you how you rate that Richter <laughs> scale. But she said, like it was a big one, you know? But Joel again is like, uh, no, I didn't really talk about that. I think someone brings up, well, sometimes like earthquakes can happen like in one spot and then just one block over, like it's it leaves there's there's no sign of an earthquake at all like it's completely untouched so maybe that's what happened
2: right that was joel that was bringing it up he was saying like you know how one person could feel could be totally different than how another person feels on mm. something so when we get in this earthquake right here one house gets flattened the other house barely feels anything at all and maggie steps out to go get i think she's like pouring another cup of coffee Um, which adds into her thing because she does tell Joel, I had too much coffee today. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. She is pouring herself another cup of coffee right here and she experiences another episode where
1: it's the screen is tremoring. Mm -hmm. It's going up and down right there. Dizzy, blurry vision. I think it's like she goes to pour her coffee and like she sees Joel from afar, like she's listening to him talk. And that I think is what we're supposed to take as causing this, like this weird Maggie vision camera thing. (laughs) Uh, let's take a little detour from this plot line and talk a little bit about Ron and Eric. We missed a little scene earlier when Chris is on K-Bear and he's announcing on, on the radio that, that Ron and Eric are to be wed and we actually get their full names, Eric Reese Hillman and Ronald Arthur Bance. Chris says, Arthur? Didn't know he had a middle name. Yeah. I don't think we ever got, uh, Ron's middle name though. I think we got... Eric Reese Hillman before, maybe in some association with the military or something. Like, I think we've heard that full name before, but now we also have Ronald Arthur Bance and, uh, you know, Maurice is of course in K-Bear here. So they have a little bit of a talking to and fro between Chris and Maurice. And Maurice is, uh, obviously upset about this, uh, Proposal of a gay marriage. This is, in in his in his opinion, a mockery of the sanctity of marriage between a man and woman. Uh, but Chris's response is actually kind of off the wall in a way too. It's like he he doesn't come right back at Maurice and be like, "What are you talking about? Like these are just, you know, these are two people that love each other." He says maybe it's not. Uh, maybe gay marriage isn't the weird thing. Maybe. We, Chris and Maurice, who are single, we are the renegades. Like being single is even more strange than a gay marriage is what he's trying to say. I just thought that was mm. kind of interesting. I don't you have any thoughts on that?
2: That makes it a lot better. I thought initially <laughs> he was saying that
1: heteronormative relationships were the outlier. I thought that was what he was trying to say, but I think, but I do think by the end of it, like I, I think what he's saying is like being a single person, is Because uh, he says, like, yeah, I see what you're saying, Maurice. You're talking about how, like, you know, a marriage between a man and a man, you can't have, like, a, you can't, like, biologically reproduce. So, like, that's not good for the species or something is what Chris is uh saying of Maurice. But he's like, well, you think about us. We're the single men. We're the we're the outcasts.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I, I can see where that's coming from. That's a lot better. Because I thought <laughs> for a little bit, I <laughs> thought he was trying to paint themselves, like, White straight males. As it's like, like we are, the underdogs. We are, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "What is going on here?" <laughs> it's
1: like we are the um. What's the word I'm looking for? He's trying to say we're the like uh, the persecuted. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah. By the, at the end of the scene, Maurice declares he's not going to attend. He's not going to go to uh Ron and Eric's wedding. Uh. But he does say under his voice, he's going to send him a gift regardless. He's like, I'm, I'm just, I'm gonna uh make sure to make a note to myself to call up Ruth Ann and make sure she sends them yada yada for a wedding gift. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely towing that line. And I talked about this a little earlier. It's just surprising how much Maurice loves these guys. Why is he, like, getting all bent out of shape about them getting married? Like, he loves them. He. It's hard for me to think that, like, he loves Ron and Eric, but he doesn't love the fact that they're together. I mean, marriage, I guess you could take that into a different thing. But... These are his friends, and yeah, I think there comes a point know. in
2: which, like, there are certain moral lines that Maurice is not willing to cross. Like, sure, he gets along with them in terms of like businessmen, and in terms of, uh, I think they play poker together. I want to yeah. say, mm-hmm. like, you know, they they get along in that type of sense. It's just that, like, when you get into their love life, he compartmentalized it so much in his brain that he's like, I can't, I can't separate that aspect of your life from who you are, even though that is a part of who they are. So, that's some like, you know, old school, black and white thinking from a reset here.
1: But anyway, to continue down with Ron and Eric's wedding here, we can see early on now they are starting to argue about the wedding arrangements, sort of like highlighting different tensions between them. Uh, I think they're talking about taking up Hauling as the caterer and uh, Eric is you know, pretty mad at Ron that Ron will just up and like change the plan kind of last minute. But Eric's mom is like, no, it's fine. Like, it's nice that they're staying local, you know, that we can stay local with this. And, um, oh, I actually wrote this down because it's such a clutch uh, combination of like the actors, like moving around and the camera. Eric's mom is like, I think it's nice that you're staying local. And then the camera now on Eric He's like walking away and he turns around to face them. And he goes, well, you haven't eaten his food, mom. (laughs) Like basically a dig at Hollings. uh, Just (laughs) felt so dramatic because of that turn to camera. But Eric's mom brings up a good point. She's like, this is going to be a community affair. Like you remember, we used to always get our cleaning done with this guy, even though he was worse than the, like the one in the city. But, you know, this guy was part of the neighborhood. So we would always get our clothes cleaned there.
2: Right. One thing that I took to note was um I read, uh, like a camera work uh preference on this mm. uh, was a was a directorial choice in there. Whenever we're looking at Ron and Eric's mother, their shot like it, it's more panned back. Like you can see their entire body. It looks normal, in my opinion. I was like, OK, that's a very standard shot. When you cut to Eric, though, he's a lot more closer up and you only see his upper half. It looks like. Like he's dominating the screen more, which I guess if we read into this like maybe his argument has more weight there, so therefore he takes up more of the screen.
1: You know, yeah, I did notice that. I did remember that because um most of the time when you see a scene, there's just simple coverage. It's like you get a shot of the if it's a two-person scene, like the two people looking at each other and talking, and then you might get a close-up single on one of them, and then a matching close-up single on the other. You cut between all these shots, it feels very equal, just like a clean, simple setup. But in this scene, as you're saying, yeah, we, we may get like a wide shot of all the action, but when we see Eric, he's got his clean single. When we see Ron and Eric's mother, they're only in a two shot. We don't really get close ups of them, I don't think, or we don't get singles, I don't think. I don't know exactly what that can mean other than to say, you did point out Eric does look a lot bigger than Ron and Eric's mom, but I don't think it's necessarily about like the size and like the dominance in the scene. I think it's more just to show that the fact that Eric is shot in a single is he's alone here, whereas on the other side of the axis, we've got um, Ron and Eric's mom together. Anytime we see them, they're not in close up. They're it's a two shot, so they're like kind of ganging up on him. I think is what mm-hmm. he's feeling. Mm, okay. That's my guess. Yeah.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a great guess. I think that plays into the contents of the story itself right there. Mm-hmm. And the next time that we see this plot line develop is going to be between Maurice and Eric's mother, Pat. Mm-hmm. So Pat is going over to Maurice to go check out the wine selection. And she's doing a lot of things uh, yeah. in this meeting. She's one, being a good mother and yeah, helping out in the wedding by Checking out the wine selection. Number two, she's wanting Maurice to come to the wedding, whether it's because she fancies him, whether it's because she feels comfortable in his presence. It doesn't really matter. She just wants wants Maurice to come. And number three, we're seeing that, like, Maurice is not going to agree to this. Mm -hmm. And that troubles her because she's trying to tell him that he's kind of reminding her of her husband which Mm -hmm. would be Eric's father and she's trying to appeal to that nature of him so a lot of balls are in the air right here but Maurice is saying like no I don't want to go I have like a a prior engagement to go to a (laughs) I cannot believe they had this in the show (laughs) he said he has to go to see let's go to the christening of our Chuck E. Cheese
1: yeah (laughs) <laughs> he's trying to open a Chuck E. Cheese franchise in Cordova, he says. He's supposed to be there to hand out balloons. What a strange uh, excuse. And it's funny, later, spoiler, he does show up to the wedding. And when he sees Pat, he's like, oh, yeah, like it turned out that Chuck E. Cheese thing was really fast. So I <laughs> like, came back <laughs> as soon as I could. I have actually,
2: okay, two things on this. One, I've never been to a Chuck E. Cheese, like in my entire life. Number two, uh, I don't know if you know this, but Chuck E. Cheese's full name is Charles Entertainment Cheese. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yeah. his full legal name.
1: <laughs> that's pretty, yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. Uh, I do, I do, I did love Chuck E. Cheese when I was a kid. I can't really remember the taste of the pizza. I remember liking it though, but of, of course, course you go good. there for the, uh, I can't, you know, I can't remember. So, but I, you go there for the arcade, of course, um. Uh, But yeah, as you were saying, a lot of, a lot of balls in the air in this scene, a lot of stuff going on. I got the sense that, you know, you mentioned like Pat is asking Maurice to come to the wedding. Um, Well, it is, it is important to mention that um, she says like, you remind me of. Eric's dad. And I think she even insinuates that like I think Eric even thinks of you as a father figure too. And in, in some way, you know, it kind of relates to you in that sense. And it would mean obviously a lot to Eric even if he doesn't want to admit it like you might sort of be a mentor to him in some ways as much as as weird as y'all's relationship is. Like I think I want to believe that that's true what she's saying too. I think Eric mm-hmm. does value Maurice in this way. But um I also think there is part of it that I want to believe that Pat maybe has been kind of flirting with Maurice. I don't necessarily think we get that in the first scene, though. I do think Maurice is kind of trying to flirt with her, like he's trying to impress her with like the Time magazine and stuff in that first scene. Mm-hmm. But we see it in this scene when she's like, you know, she really wants him to be there and she wants him to sit next to her. Yeah. So maybe a little flirtation. I think uh, another thing I noted in this scene, which was interesting, Maurice is, they're going through the sort of wine cellar and he's showing her different, different wines that they should buy for the wedding, offering her some like affordable wines. I don't know if this is like, he's trying to save her money or if he's just like, doesn't want to give them the good stuff because he offers her Claude Bois Chardonnay, which, Charles, I don't know if you've heard that before. I've definitely seen, I've had this and I've seen it in stores everywhere. Claude Dubois, at least, you know, where I live. Um, it's a, as he says, it's a California wine. Uh, and he lists the price there for like $10, I think he says. And that's in 1994. For today, you can still pay $10 for Claude Dubois, which I think is kind of. I don't what? Know. That's kind of crazy, right? Like, shouldn't there be some sort of inflation? But it's not like an expensive wine. It's not like dirt cheap. That, it's kind of in the middle. I mean, ten dollars for wine, I think, is pretty cheap today.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. That is some <laughs> Costco hot dog business right there. Or it does not <laughs> right, change yeah, its they price. They don't change,
1: they fix the price. <laughs> they do not want to change the price. Uh he also pours some Vauve Clicquot, uh, though he recommends the domestic mum. Uh, which is a, it's a price saver recommendation. Mum Napa, I think, is what he's talking about. Though he prefers Veuve Clicot, his favorite, he says, and they, they drink it, you know, he tries to change the subject. He's like, yeah, just, just taste this wine. And the end of the scene is Maurice saying, note the dryness. I, I'm sure that's some sort of subtextual underline to, to to point out like Maurice is being kind of like dry and uh, not affectionate, not um, not having a lot of feelings for what's going on here. Just trying to be cut and dry with uh, with the operation here,
2: right? I, overall, like. You know, I understand what the scene is trying to do because he's going to set up with that scene later on with Eric and Maurice. But before we get there, we're going to get one more scene that kind of sets it all up, which is them uh, talking about the whole arrangement of the wedding. And I actually think this is a really well directed or at least a well blocked out scene. This is operating on a lot of levels that i really enjoy Mm. so initially we get them with like a wide shot of them leaving the house and they're talking about the floor arrangement they're talking about where they're going to be and then the camera zooms in toward the four characters which is ron eric chris and pat and all of them scatter to their locations that they're supposed to be it's obviously already predetermined by the actors and we know this because of how the camera is shooting on all of the four characters, we're going to have Ron on the left side, Pat's in the background, tending to the garden. Eric and Chris are in the middle and on the right respectively. And whenever Ron gets into it a little bit with Eric, Pat from the background can come into the foreground and Mm -hmm. meet with Eric. And then She's going to pull him back, dragging those two back into the background while they talk. And then Eric's going to get into one more argument with Ron. And mm-hmm. Eric's going to step back into the foreground and they're going to snap. And then Eric's going to leave this scene. And I thought it was really neat that Pat's being shot in between Ron and Eric, but she's in the background.
1: Mm-hmm. But she
2: can come. She comes easily into the frame of the foreground of the camera. And I think that's like really well done. This is like great blocking.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's always interesting to see when you have a scene, because most scenes are between two characters, you know? Sometimes you mm-hmm. get three and then four. It's like, you know, you really like the four corners. and You can always have, obviously have more than four, but um, I'm glad that they, like, you know, put some, put some thought into not only how are we going to write for four characters in one scene, but how are we going to show this? And there's a lot of interesting ways you can move these bodies around, because you have so many things going on at once. You can say so much very quickly, um, you know, sort of indirectly through image uh, or even directly, you know, like without without words, you can kind of show so much, like you're saying with Pat sort of being uh, blocked or like positioned where she is between them. And and this is, a am trying to remember in this scene, I do remember they're arguing about music choice or something. Is that this scene? Mm-hmm. So they're like kind of arguing about a change in music choice. Again, it's like, Ron wants to make some last minute changes just because like some ideas are coming up now and Eric is, wants to keep things like how they originally agreed. And there's a reason why we did this because we were kind of in a disagreement before we came to this agreement. Uh, so we should stick to what we talked about. Obviously um, some stress here. I think even uh, Eric you know, again, he's like, "Mom, you always side with Ron." And I think Eric leaves the scene. Can't remember.
2: Yeah, Eric pretty much leaves the scene right here, and Chris comes in between them to stop them from fighting. But Ooh, yeah, you pretty oh, much that, well, no, right they're there. about
1: to fight each other. I forgot about that they're about yeah. to start punching. <laughs> pretty frightening that they start, <laughs> to start punching each other. Um, but I guess we got Chris here to break it up. Uh, let's go to Joel and Maggie again. So we've kind of uh, left them for a moment, but. There is a scene when Joel sees Maggie once more. She's totally trying to avoid him. And Joel's like, uh, he's, he's catching on to like something is going, something's wrong here. Maggie is like quickly avoiding Joel. She comes into the office for a moment and then leaves. And he sees her through the window basically like faint and like fall to the ground. So he brings her in to the examining room, uh, you know, does the whole thing, like follow my finger with your eyes, like, you know, checking what could be wrong. And he has some ideas, like Maggie is basically like, it's too much coffee. I had too much coffee. I did this all the time back in college, like with, um, you know, late night studying, all-nighters. The room would start spinning, like, you know, I've just had too much coffee is her excuse. Joel says, well, you know, there's a name for that, ataxia. Uh, It keeps happening, I've noticed. Like you mentioned the thing about the plane turbulence, the earthquake that you've experienced, you thought you experienced. And if this is a repeat occurrence, it could be a a number of things that we should probably be looking into. We shouldn't write this off.
2: Right. Uh, Joel's just being responsible. He's trying to prescribe to Maggie saying like, okay, it's something to do with your inner ear. And it's a sickness, a biological sickness that is causing this and maggie's saying like right. no no no, it's like an earthquake it's something outside it's an external thing ah, that's affecting uh-huh. me right here so maggie leaves the office um and the next time that we see her is actually where we finally get these two plot lines yeah. to come together so maggie is meeting up with ron and she's got the tickets to kalua which is actually not where he wanted to go to he's saying like I didn't even catch that wow yeah Eric's a little bit of like a jumpy flyer so he wanted to go to this Mm, location and I think the purpose of this line is to suggest that like he's also compromising as well like it's something that Eric doesn't realize but he's also compromising Maggie sees him and she shakes in her vision right there again and I think that this is kind of a telltale sign that it doesn't have to be about Joel Mm -hmm. because Joel's nowhere in this scene and yet she's still experiencing this so that's something that she could have deduced but again like, I I can kind of understand like why she doesn't.
1: Yeah. You could link it to her like thinking about Joel but again it's not it isn't we find out it's not necessarily just Joel and as so it makes sense that like we get this moment where she's sort of shaky even though Joel's not there.
2: Right. Uh and she talks to Ron about her problems. She's saying like you know I think it's like I think it's like Fleischman that's causing this. And Ron kind of tries to use his own personal story to guide her he says that he used to be married to a woman and in that time he was also experiencing sickness until he realized that it was the woman that was the source of his problem not that she was necessarily a bad person or anything like that it's just that biologically his body was repelling her because he he did not want to be with this woman. Yeah, just on sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. And then once he divorced her, he felt immediately better. They still have a good relationship with one another. And Maggie's trying to say, like, is that what's happening between me and Joel? Like, because we're out of sync. Like, Joel's treating me too nicely. That's not part of the natural order. Are you saying that, like, even nature's rebelling against us? And Ron just says, like, I'm not too sure. I'm just saying that, like, I felt better once I was with Eric.
1: Yeah, I wrote down, is Maggie gay? Uh, But I don't think that's what she's suggesting. She says, uh, Fleischman and I aren't meant to be together. And Ron says, "Uh, you know, I'm not sure, but it sounds to me like your body is trying to tell you something. So, yeah, it's not necessarily a death sentence for their relationship, but yeah.
2: Ah, God, that's one of those things. Like, I heard that and I was like, please don't go in the direction where I think you're You're going. You're scared
1: for their relationship? Yeah, it's like they're going to break up. silly
2: like that. If I had gotten presented with that-
1: yeah, if this if this like broke up their relationship, just like a random like inexplainable medical condition, I would be like, yeah, I feel so cheated. Even in real life, I would be, I would feel like super <laughs> cheated. I'd be like, I'm sorry, why? Like you're, you're you're breaking up with
2: me for why? <laughs> like that is an absolutely it's bananas not you, It's, yeah, it's yeah, not like, you. It's me. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> literally not you. It's me. It's like what are you talking about right here? But yeah, now we can cycle back into. Eric and Maurice. So we're getting a lot of unusual pairings right here. Yeah, But this one was destined to be because Eric's mother was talking about Maurice being a sort of a father figure to Eric. And now Eric, after the fight, is going to call the whole thing off. Storming into Maurice's place, he's telling him like, look, just give me 500 bucks. You know, I'm good for it. I'm going to leave. I'm going to.
1: What's that word called when you leave your wedding? Uh, I don't know. It's not elope because elope is like when you go have a wedding without anyone there. Right. Uh, he's going to like run from the altar, run runaway bride. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I guess it's calling off the wedding, but I thought that was like a word. Yeah. If you're, it. if you're listening and you left have a good word altar. for this, left the altar. There you yeah. go. Um, yeah, it's funny though. You're right. He, he comes in, asks Maurice for $500 and, I guess maybe in the script, he's like kind of talking to himself, but on on screen, he's like talking out loud. He's like, drive to Seattle straight through the night. You know, I got some friends in Port Townsend, uh, which is where I wanted to go in the first place before Ron talked me into coming to try to gentrify this outback. You know, he's talking aloud and Mm -hmm. Maurice is like, uh, gives him $500 and he's, uh, you know, I think... Eric's about to like get out of there and Maurice is like, you want to fill me in here? Are you, are you trying to leave town? I'm like, Maurice, he just said that. He just said he wants to leave. Um, So I don't know what's, what exactly that was about, but maybe it's just Maurice kind of being um, a little surprised by all this. Cause this is, Eric is definitely acting out of the ordinary for sure. Maurice's instinct here is to like calm him down. Pours Eric some, I don't know, is that whiskey, brandy, scotch or something Pours him some brown liquor there Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's a pretty touching moment here Because it's like you said If we take into account what Pat was saying Like Eric views you sort of as a mentor Or at least as sort of like a fatherly figure That maybe can You know Add some sort of like Calmness or direction to him, him Give him that It's nice to see that Maurice is like Have you You know Have you taken a moment to just think about this Really think it over You're about to like ruin, if not ruin your life, you're going to ruin a lot of people's, you know, plans of happiness here. He says, think about your mother. And he's, it's even funny. He's like, um, he's self-aware and saying like, in the first place, Maurice was not supporting this. And now he's like the, he's the one piece of string that's going to hold it together. He's like, I'm here. Mm -hmm. That's going to, I'm the person that's going to keep this marriage together. Can't believe I'm doing this, but, um, what is it? He's basically like, you should, you should crash here for the night. Think it over.
2: Right. Uh, it's one of those things where like, uh, Maurice recognizes that this is, uh, the problems that they have are the problems that straight people have. It's the same as like me. Like if you replay, if you replay their argument, you know, rewind the tape and you see it, you can find this problem in any relationship. One side thinks that they're not being heard. The other side feels like they're not being respected it's a common thing. So like Maurice recognizes this. He's like, I don't know anything about like the extreme details of your relationship, but I've seen this in like other relationships and it's super common. And what you got to do is like, you just got to calm down. You just got to meet him eye to eye. You got to talk it out, you know, communication. Mm-hmm. That's the thing for every relationship. So Maurice is
1: kind of like slowly realizing Starting that to like, see. it's like, yeah, this it's is like, just normal. This is like everyone else.
2: Yeah. It's just like, isn't it like some special weird thing? It's like, it's the same BS that you got to deal with in other weddings,
1: and he's doing yeah. the same
2: thing where like a, a bride or a groom would be
1: annoyed and be like, "I'm leaving town. Like I'm worst mistake of
2: my life." It's the same <laughs> language choice.
1: Maybe Maurice's love language is not intimacy, or like you know, like what I'm trying to say is like he doesn't anytime he sees like Ron and Eric intimate. He's, like, disgusted by them, but then when he sees them fighting, he's like, oh, yeah, this is just, like, a normal relationship, a normal loving relationship, which in the end, it's like, yeah, it's like a mature relationship, has problems, but, like, they deal with them together, you know?
2: Right. It's like he sees, like, the love may not be the same, but the conflicts are the same. (laughs) That's, I I guess guess that's where we can find common ground, and I'm going to talk to him, and he's, you know, really nice about it. You know, props to Maurice. Props to Maurice for, like, I love that. Yeah. Realizing what's happening here, him stepping in, him saying the right answers. He's not providing like the the silver bullet. He's just saying like, look, I'm just going to offer you a place to stay and a place for you to calm down so you can collect your thoughts.
1: I love this. Yeah. It definitely feels very comforting for Maurice here. I love the idea of like before his wedding night, Eric is going to crash here at Maurice's, collect his feelings and, you know, be stronger for it on the next day. And, uh, what happens? Let's see. I'm trying to see what might happen next with Joel and Maggie. Yeah. This is at, is this at the wedding? Um, or is this before? Cause I have a scene where Joel is like looking around for Maggie. She's dressed up in that like hat that it just reminds me of, um, mary swanson from dumb and dumber if you remember like the dream sequence that he has of mary swanson she's got like a hat like that <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what that style is called
2: um no you're you're right this is pretty much like the last thread of their plot line right here which is at ron and eric's wedding so she went to the wedding by herself because she said that she had to go uh to care some the seating. different yeah the seating oh yeah, yeah that's what she was doing Uh, Joel meets her at the wedding and immediately she starts getting like these visions or like she's freaking out because she's seeing Joel and she's thinking like, I got to like do something about this relationship between me and Joel. It's not natural. And then we go through the wedding itself, which we'll talk about once we get back to Ron and Eric. But after that wedding, we see Maggie in the bathroom. Uh, She runs to the bathroom to go puke, uh, to vomit. She's obviously not feeling well. And Joel, being the good person that he is, notices this. And he goes and checks up on Maggie. And he he tells her, he's like, you actually have a sickness. It's a physical sickness. It just Mm -hmm. coincided at this time of our relationship. Right here. Mm -hmm. It's not a big deal. And then Maggie's relieved. She's like, okay, so this isn't being caused by some extraneous factor right here. There's actually something sick with me.
1: Yeah. There's like a medical reason. It's not like some weird aversion to, to you, Joel. He says it's labyrinthitis. And it manifests like a viral infection. I don't know if there's, I I didn't really look into this. So maybe we know more about it today. But Joel's like, you know, there's not a whole lot that we know about it. The bad news is uh, there's no cure for it. But the good news is it's going to be over in like a week. And you've got a pretty mild case. But yeah, Maggie's just so relieved to be like, so I'm really sick. And he says, you're absolutely sick. And she's like, that's great. That's good. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that's, that's, working out for her there. I wrote, I wrote down, we didn't talk about this, but there's a few pretty important needle drops in this episode. Earlier in the brick, uh, we hear white wedding by Billy Idol. So Chris is definitely spinning some music for the occasion here. Uh, there's also another song. I don't remember what scene it's in, but it's, um, I knew the bride when she used to rock by rock pile. Is that what it's called? Let me see. I Knew the Bride When She Used to Rock and Roll by uh, Rockpile or Nick Lowe is also um, like the writer, I guess, of that song. I don't know what scene that's in. It uh, comes in earlier in my notes. Um, oh, I think it actually might be part of the... No, it's part of this wedding. It's it's I see it's later in my notes. And also, I don't know if you noticed this, but there's that uh, Chuck Berry song from Pulp Fiction. You never can tell. They play that during the wedding. And I was like, is it possible that Tarantino saw this episode of Northern Exposure and put this in Pulp Fiction? Because this episode predates the release of Pulp Fiction. But I read also online that Pulp Fiction wrapped, um, you know, before this episode was even shot. So it's possible that while they were editing it, they chose this song, like, you know, after the fact. But- Mm -hmm. Something tells me they probably like had the song chosen when they were shooting the movie. Uh, I don't know. It's possible that Tarantino saw this episode while editing Pulp Fiction and was like, yeah, I should put this song into that famous (laughs) scene where they're dancing uh, the jitterbug contest or whatever it is. But no, yeah, uh, I guess unlikely that Northern Exposure influenced, (laughs) but they were kind of tapping the same, uh, what is that? Like the same inspiration there for that song.
2: Right. Yeah, <laughs> no, I agree. I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of neat songs that are be done here. I think Chris is doing a good job. And speaking of Chris, he's also officiating the wedding between Ron and Eric.
1: Yeah did it Did he mention that earlier in the episode that he's going to be officiating it? Or I mean, I guess we could assume it's Northern Exposure he would do it. But I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah he's
2: the officiating. I think, like, I think like the very first scene when he's on the radio. Probably so. He yeah. says something to Probably the tune of like, I got to select, I got to like find the music. What, what type of thing do you think they like? So he talks about that. But yeah, we get to the um, officiating of the wedding and I think that we, uh we have a sound bite for that, right?
1: Yeah. Let me play that here. This is, uh, obviously we played um, Chris getting everyone together for the vows, I guess, or the marriage ceremony. You call that marriage vows, I guess? Yeah. And then, uh, uh, yeah, so then we have this here. I'll play the soundbite of the wedding vows.
0: Ron, will you have Eric to be your spouse, to love him, comfort him in sickness and in health, stick it out till the fat lady sings? I will. Eric, how about you? I will. Excellent, let's go for the gold. Above you is the sun and sky, below you the ground. Like the sun, your love should be constant. Like the ground solid. You both cool with that? We are. In that case, I now pronounce you married.
1: Yeah, I like it. It's simple to the point and also pretty like informal cause he's like, he'll sort of like relate their love to the sun and the earth. And he's like, are you cool with that? <laughs> and their response also is pretty funny, like in unison. Kind of deadpan in a way.
2: Right. And it's important that they're referencing
1: the Earth. Because of the title of the episode. I also think that maybe this title is, uh, we'll get to it at the very end of the episode, but I think it's maybe uh, hinting at sort of like a change in... I don't know, like a change in our outlook. Like this is supposed to be a progressive idea in the early nineties. As I said, I think this is the second depiction of a gay marriage, uh, on TV, like ever. I think before this, there was a TV show, uh, called rock ROC and there's a 1991 episode called can't help loving that man. That was the very first gay marriage, uh, that I could find, you know, looking online on television. So, um, You know, a few years later, we have this episode and maybe the title, I guess, is referring sort of like a change in our beliefs, I guess. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I think it kind of plays into that. I'm looking at this in the year 2022, so I have a little bit more hindsight to back me up on this. (laughs) But I think that when you think of the Earth moving, you think that that's a very significant thing. But really, whenever the Earth moves, it uses its tectonic plates to shift And tectonic plates only shift about like an inch or so, give or take, every year. So it's actually a very slow but steady change that's natural. Mm. It's fine to have this change. So we can see this uh, play throughout the relationship between Joel and Maggie. It's fine that their relationship is escalating in this manner. It's a slight shift. And Maggie feels lost and confounded whenever it does shift. But it's okay. Like it's okay for the tectonic plates to move in the same way that Ron and Eric, are causing the Earth to shift with this marriage uh, between two genders that was, you know, it just wasn't heard of back in that day. But Mm -hmm. you got to take very slow but steady changes in order to change the entire operation. And I think that's kind of what the title of the episode is going with, with the Earth shifting.
1: Yeah, I definitely like that. It's like the idea of an earthquake is shocking, kind of scary, but... It's a natural thing, as you just explained. And I guess if you're right, like the the tectonic plates are only shifting just a little bit and they're maybe constantly doing that ever so slightly. So this is just natural. Like, you know, it's not something, uh, especially if we look at the very last moment of the episode, uh, something that seems pretty startling, um, definitely like a very northern exposure move. But uh, it's just uh, Joel and Maggie kind of hanging out, and the camera starts like shaking wildly. There's an actual earthquake. And I think it's pretty cool. Like, they're like, whoa, this is an actual earthquake. And um, the camera fades to, or the screen fades to black, and we actually see. David Chase, executive producer, we can still hear the audio of the earthquake and Joel's like, should we get under a table or something? And Maggie says, an earthquake, what a relief, (laughs) which I think is cool. You know, obviously like her sickness, you know, it's like, it's not just me being sick right now. This is like actually happening. And also just the fact that, you know, we don't necessarily need to be afraid that when we come back next week on Northern Exposure, all of the characters are dead. No, that's not like, we're not afraid of this (laughs) earthquake. Uh, And Maggie, her expression there totally fulfills that idea of like, it's like there's nothing to be worried about the earth moving, you know?
2: Yeah. And a status quo is being shaken up.
1: Exactly. Yeah. This actually reminds me of the ending of a movie uh, Shortcuts, which came out the year before this, 1993. Mm -hmm. It's a Robert Altman movie. Spoiler alert. It ends with like, a big earthquake happening. Like it's a story with a large ensemble cast and then sort of, they're all brought together at the end because this earthquake happens, uh, in each of the stories, you know? Oh, wow. I wonder if that had any effect on, uh, the writer here. Cause this movie is somewhat recent. It was like 93. So it came out the year before this episode. Um, so maybe you wanted to have a similar ending. I don't know. Hmm. Okay. That's really interesting. All right, Charles. So now's the point where we're going to bring on our guests. We mentioned at the top of the episode that we've got the Subtextual Podcast on this episode. Once again, I just want to shout them out. Subtextual, amazing podcast where Lizzie and Sam, who are previous guests on our podcast, uh, Lizzie and Sam talk about movies and analyze movies in sort of a queer lens. So they'll talk about movies that might be overtly gay or even subtextually gay, which is a lot of fun to, to see, like, how is this movie gay? You do not expect it. But it is quite it is quite gay, um, and then obviously like just overtly gay movies we we talk about on that podcast, and they've always got just hilarious takes, but also super their their perspective is something I would never necessarily have myself. So it's always like really interesting to see what they think of a movie and what things they're picking up on that I never pick up on. So that's why I'm like super interested to get their take on this particular episode. I think it's a fitting one because as we said, it's the uh, like the second gay marriage ever on television. Um, So without further ado, let's have Lizzie and Sam give their thoughts about this episode.
3: Hey, Charles and Lee. Hey guys. It's Lizzie and Sam from the subtextual podcast. Thank you guys for having us on to talk about this incredible episode. I think we have a lot of opinions. Monumental. Um, God, where do we start? I just don't ever want to think about the liver pate. Ugh. Like, that's the only thing that's really coming to the front of my mind right now. That's what stuck with you? Ugh, so gross. And that poor lady ate it. <laughs> Ugh, unfortunate. Okay,
4: Wait. This is not for us to talk about, but what's with the age gap? I thought but that was her caterer. grandpa. I thought that was her literal father. Yeah. And she was like, honey, the bed's getting cold. And I
3: was like, that is a <laughs> really weird way for me to learn that they're. <laughs> <f-."> <laughs> it was very uncomfortable. And m- these couples in this episode didn't make sense to me. Um, the gay couple, especially, didn't make sense to me. They really read more as brothers yeah. that were like bickering with their mom.
4: First of all, I couldn't figure out the mom there, like, whose mom that was. Like, I guessed... It was the one with the beard, and I guessed wrong. It was the other one, the kind of snootier one. Or they wanted you to think he was the snootier one. But, yeah, the couples in this episode, and I don't know if the whole show is treated like this, but they don't act like couples, really. Like, they no. don't touch. They don't kiss. Like, no no physical contact whatsoever out here. Mm-hmm. Even the, like, grooms at their wedding, like, it was very, like, chaste. Like, I think they dance for a second. But
3: they, they legitimately seemed like they hated each other. This seems like a doomed marriage. Yeah, they set. They seemed more like brothers with like a, a weird i don't know sort of struggle like power struggle than anything else and then when they like ended up getting married there was no resolution in between right. when he was gonna leave and the marriage
4: right he's just like i need 500 to leave and the guy who is a trumper was like no sleep on my couch but even though i was like you would let this gay man sleep in your house but you wouldn't go to his wedding that's such yeah. a weird like standard to have he's like i'll give this gay man money to escape his marriage, but I won't go to the marriage.
3: Yeah, he ended up coming, which was, like, nice and cute. Yeah. I just want to shout out John Corbet, Corbett, uh, Aiden from Sex and the City. He is so hot, and he did such a good oh, job yeah. as the ordained, what would you call it? The Not the minister. The officiant. Yeah, he did a great job at the officiant. I think what he said at their wedding is what I once said at my wedding. Like hey, you know, just give it a good try. Pick a person because the world's on fire. All right. Now hold hands and you're married. (laughs) Yeah.
4: Another kind of interesting, like the storyline that stuck with me the most for some reason was the one where the like pretty girl next door like kept getting woozy. And I was like, oh, she's pregnant. Like for sure she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. But the thing was like, she thought she was, Allergic to her boyfriend.
3: Like, she thought like, being around him made her stressed. Yeah. This episode had like 700 storylines. I think my favorite's got to be the secretary with her journal.
4: <gasps> I totally forgot about that. That's so. She read the shit out of him. <laughs> he was no like, word. I have to see these portions. I have to see what you're writing about me. And she's like, all right, fine, here. And it's like, the boss man asked me to make coffee today. <laughs> I'm like, She's not
3: thinking about you. She spends none of her time considering <laughs> what the f- is going on with that guy. Oh, man. She was a great, great performance. Yeah. I think so many standouts in this one episode. Uh, the gay marriage seemed really cute. I, I wouldn't... I don't think if I was having a marriage or, like, a wedding in Alaska, I would do a gourmet. Veuve like, Co Yeah. Veuve Clicquot. It's like... I I imagine Alaska is like Hawaii, where everything is so much more expensive because it has to be flown in, right?
4: Right. We don't. We know we have no context to know why they're there and like why Alaska. Um, And you know, like the more I think about this, like what was I expecting from like because I knew from Lee telling us that this episode was about two men getting married and it's like something that's kind of been a long time coming. So I don't know what I expected these characters to be like, (laughs) but I will say Northern Exposure will always deliver the thing you didn't know would happen. Like, no one acted in any way, I would have guessed. So no. there's something to be said about that. It was not yeah. stereotypically gay,
3: which is like, you know, there's some points there. Yeah, I expected it to be like the gay couple was perfect and, and well-maintained and in love yeah, and like, sappy and cute. Exactly. But they were like, I hate you. And my mom <laughs> hates me (laughs) complicated yeah um I would be curious to watch
4: the episode like immediately after this just to know how their first few days of the honeymoon went um so Lee if you could throw me that link that'd be cool
3: yeah you got us right yeah I I think there's a million more things to be said but I I honestly don't even know where to put them in my mind right now we'll leave that to (laughs) y'all thanks again for having us on bye bye All right, that was Lizzie and Sam's
2: thoughts on the episode right there. Very interesting. Um, I think the very first thing that I want to talk about from their thoughts is that they thought it was really strange that there wasn't any intimacy or physical contact Mm -hmm. between them. I want to say that it's probably written by the network. At Mm, the time that it was airing, they were probably like, okay, we'll let you do this, you know, this little plot line right here. But for like, you know standards and regulation we're not gonna we're not gonna show any sort of contact any intimacy right here we are on CBS on like 8 8 p.m. prime time <laughs> we are not showing this this is 1994 Yeah. Um, so i think that might have been like some notes that i got from the suits and i think that's why it feels like there isn't any love between their relationship
1: yeah you know actually uh, we didn't bring this up but i'm sure this was like wildly protested against by certain people this episode. And I did notice on uh, moosechick.com, she writes about, uh, I'll just read this straight from the site. The Reverend Donald E. Wildman wrote a letter to the advertisers. It is tragic that CBS will give the homosexual lifestyle such warm approval. It is regrettable that CBS and the other networks have caved into pressure from the radical wing of the homosexual movement and agreed to promote this lifestyle. So, you know, there definitely were people who were pretty upset by this episode. So, kind of, uh, you know... uh uh, what's the word like uh cowardly uh you know network execs that were like you know we can't do we can't go that far you know
2: yeah i mean in their defense (laughs) i'm not trying to defend them at all i'm just saying it's 1994 (laughs) you gotta understand They didn't even air this on cba it's not like this is like some obscure tv channel airing at 2 a.m this is uh prime time stuff and they're like you know, I gotta let's <laughs> compromise.
1: Let's <laughs> I did love that note of from Lizzie and Sam. I didn't even wasn't even thinking about that. I didn't even realize how sterile this show is starting to become. Cause if you think about like the first and second season, Maggie like definitely like played as like so sexy like the sexiest thing possible there's a lot of sex appeal in the earlier seasons for sure and i'm not just saying like we've lost it completely there's probably some sexy stuff happening in this season that i'm not that's not coming to mind but i just feel like maybe it was sexier before we lost some sex appeal
2: ah yeah (laughs) um they brought up that there wasn't like uh there wasn't like a resolution at the end Mm -hmm. of the scene like, basically, he got into an argument, and then the next scene that we see them, uh, between Ron and Eric, they're getting married. Yeah. So, like, their resolution came, like, steep, like, just a cliff yeah. right there. And I can kind of see it. Like, probably a budgeting issue of time. Like I said before, mm-hmm. if we take out some of those plot lines, could probably fit a little bit more.
1: Yeah, you know, it's not just Ron and Eric's plot line. I felt like in that final scene at the wedding, there's a lot of things that they're wrapping up all at once, and very... Neatly. Like I was, I mentioned, I was actually confused about Hollings ending there because I missed the moment when you see the Cantwell caterer shirt, Mm -hmm. the guy with the Cantwell caterer shirt. So I wasn't totally sure what was going on there. But everything does sort of like we see the characters being like, oh no, Dark Knight of the Soul. And then it's like, the next time we see them, they're at the wedding. It all worked out. You guys, like, this is how it all worked out. We don't Mm -hmm. see them, you know have that necessary... Well, I guess there are climaxes to their storyline, but, you know, it just feels like it's a bit of a jump to get from before the wedding and then we're at the wedding. Maybe that has something to do with... This is like Jed Seidel, is that the writer's name? His his first episode writing, mm-hmm. you know? It, I also thought... I don't want to necessarily put the blame on on the writing because I, I thought when I was watching the wedding scene, I was like, there must be some, some uh, deleted scenes here. There are no deleted scenes on the DVD, but that doesn't mean that they don't exist. So Mm -hmm. I wonder if there was like more stuff that they shot. And that could also be, you know, a testament to a first time writer, maybe overwriting things. And then it has to get cut out of the episode because there's just not enough time. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe it could be anything, but I definitely felt that there was a lot of sort of loose ends wrapped up a little too quickly at the end. Uh, I just again on Liz, Lizzie and Sam's thoughts on Ron and Eric, I thought it was interesting they pointed out that the relationship felt more like brothers rather than husband and husband. I think that's partly because they were talking about it feels like more of like a sexless relationship, kind of sterile. Um, But that is an interesting point. Like they're kind of fighting each other, arguing over mom and stuff like that, and they got you know got confused. Like you know was that. Ron, they thought it was Ron's mom, but it's actually Eric's mom. I actually still get confused, Ron and Eric. Like I don't, uh, this episode actually helped me a lot to differentiate them because I know mm-hmm. like Pat is the mom of Eric and I know what her son looks like and I know that that is Eric. So then I can say, Ron. okay, Ron Ron is the other one. <laughs> I yeah, get me too.
2: I was like, Eric's the one with the nose. That's Ron's how I differentiate it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Eric, I was like- uh Don McManus, I think, is his name. He's in a lot of stuff. Um, I always see him popping up. Mm, okay. Yeah. Uh, I
2: thought one thing that was interesting that only Lizzie and Sam brought up was that they thought that Maggie was pregnant, which yeah. I
1: should have guessed <laughs> at too. I saw, I thought that for a second, but obviously, I've seen this episode before, and I, you know, I was rereading the premise before watching the episode, so I knew what was happening, but I was like. They could have taken this in a direction. They don't even do it in the episode, but the episode could have taken the direction of like, should Maggie think she's pregnant for a second? I don't know. Mm, but that doesn't really yeah. come out. They love the Marilyn Joel storyline. And, you know, Charles, and our analysis of the episode, were kind of like, why is that in there? What's the point? But I think at the end of the day, it's just a fun, funny storyline. Like, obviously, Sam and Lizzie love to see You know, it's not all about Joel. He thinks it's all about himself and Marilyn's way of like cutting him down, you know, in such a simple nonverbal way is kind of funny, you know.
2: Right. They pointed out that it's a non-stereotypically gay relationship where you thought it was going to be picture perfect. And I think that's actually to the credit of the episode. Now, Mm -hmm. whether that was consciously done, that can be debated because I can see like, you know, maybe that was just the way the contours of the relationship had to play out for this Mm -hmm. episode. But we can see them like argue like any other couple. We can see them getting this pits and pats just like any other couple. So, yeah, I think that all played out really well.
1: And I'm not going to ignore the uh, because all of our guests will always talk about Hauling and Shelley, the age gap. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I don't remember y'all's episodes, Lizzie and Sam, the ones you guys came on. I don't remember them fully, but certainly you saw them, I would assume. I mean, there are episodes without Shelley and Hauling, but uh, but you guys have seen this before. But I mean, there's no, I don't think we've ever come up with a amazing reason. And maybe there is, there's probably no amazing reason why there's an age gap. <laughs> we talked about this a lot, but um, yeah, I mean- I think I say this every single time. I think the show tries to be very progressive and this is like one of those hills. They were like, yeah, let's try to tackle uh, May, December romances and make that like normal and make that like a progressive thing. But, uh, I just think there's a lot of maybe taint to that in in our in our, in our culture, you know, it just doesn't seem like the right thing. I'm not saying it's bad at all. And I think uh, Northern exposure does handle it with grace sometimes, uh, Unfortunately, sometimes it's mostly played for a joke, like it's an age gap joke, but there are moments that are like super graceful, super loving, and I live for those. That's like, that's why I, I believe in that relationship, but it is, uh yeah, it's kind of hard to defend that all the time. Uh, well, finally, before we wrap it up, the very first, one of the very first things they point out, that liver pate. We didn't talk about this, Charles. Do you like liver? Ah, uh, Hand to God, I don't think I've ever had liver. I have definitely tried it, uh, you know, a few times. My mom used to cook it, I guess, for its nutritional value. I guess it's like very high in iron. And God, the smell of liver cooking is worse than the taste. I just don't like that. I remember uh, that TV show, Doug, where like Mm -hmm. uh, Doug always hated liver and onions. But then when he finally tried it, he was like, oh, this is actually pretty good. It's too... The texture is like dense, and the taste is kind of bloody and irony. Even like pate, I'll, I'll. Anytime there's like chopped liver, I'll, I'll grab a cracker and I'll try it. I like to taste it, you know, to to test it out every once in a while. But I don't ever really see myself finishing a lot of it. Like I'll definitely have it, but I, it's not something. Um, it's not. I, I guess. Oysters is another thing like that, but with oysters, I could eat a lot of oysters. But it is something Mm -hmm. where, like, I couldn't eat a lot, a lot of oysters. There comes a limit. But yeah, I don't know. I think that my knowledge of liver and liver and onions comes
2: from I want to say it's Garfield, like the comic strip. Oh, yeah. I think Garfield had. Yeah, I think (laughs) I'm pretty sure he had a dislike of liver and onions. You
1: know, he likes lasagna, but I could believe him disliking (laughs) liver. (laughs) and
2: go go ahead. Was like a tweet that I saw yesterday, <laughs> where it, was like, it was like, uh, point of view, I am Garfield's vet. You've been feeding him what? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh. but anyway, yeah, I think that that's the only time I've really heard about liver and onions. It's not something that's like really done in Chinese cuisines. Uh, when I was growing up, do they so have,
1: is liver a thing though? Is liver a thing like chicken livers or? I really. Didn't. I. I mean, if it is, it's just you something just my parents just
2: did not cook. Like that's yeah. just. Uh, and we definitely weren't going to be cooking that in, like, you know, elementary school up to high school when <laughs> you eat <laughs> eating lunch. I'm going to serve you that. So yeah,
1: yeah. I just never really had liver. Yeah. Well, hey, I really, I really enjoyed y'all's takes, uh, Lizzie and Sam. Definitely hit on so many things that we didn't even touch on in our episode. So it's really refreshing to be able to like. Re like talk about it again with all these new points. Thanks for watching it. Thanks for having us on your pod. By the way, listener, if you liked listening to Lizzie and Sam, obviously go check out Subtextual Podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. And you can hear us. I think if you're listening to this the day this episode is released, you can hear us on their podcast talking with them about the movie Happy Together by one of my favorite filmmakers, Wong Ka Wai. Uh, Yeah, it was just such fun talking with them, talking about that movie. Yeah, it's such a good movie. So uh, yeah, definitely don't sleep on subtextual. Okay, Charles, as Lizzie was saying, she wants to know what will happen in the next episode of Northern Exposure. Something tells me we probably won't see Ron and Eric in the very next episode of Northern Exposure, but I don't know. The next episode is going to be called Grand Prix. Do you have a guess as to what that episode could be about?
2: uh definitely a race there's
1: a race <laughs> like, definitely a race how, how can it not with the title like that mm-hmm. um like racing snowmobiles or just your traditional like i don't car. think it's snowmobile
2: because it's coming out of winter now aren't they
1: yeah the snow has already started to melt you're right
2: yeah so i don't it's think spring. they could have snowmobiles i don't know like a uh, uh, really anything anything you could do isn't that the no, that's the Tour de France, right? The one with the bikes? Bikes. hmm Yeah. That's true. Uh, Grand Prix yeah. is the one with the cars, is it not? I believe so. Yeah. So maybe, but like, I, I don't, don't know, because when you think of Grand Prix- I think any be, race
1: could be Grand Prix yeah. maybe, yeah. You
2: really call them Grand Prix, so it could really be any race right there. But I don't know. I'm just going to say that it's going to involve some sort of racing elements right there, and that's exciting enough as it is.
1: Yeah. I think you're pretty close there. So we'll talk about that next week. Charles, thanks for potting and uh, yeah, talk to you next week.
2: All right, I'll see you next week.
1: Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Beeball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Lizzie and Sam for being our guests. You can listen to their podcast, Subtextual, wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.